Hello, boys and ghouls. And welcome to a bloody good episode. All about the films and frights and friendship of those brilliant British thespians, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Join us as we chart their lives from their very different backgrounds to acting in the background. From gentlemen to boogeymen. From hammer horror to amicus anthologies to canon films. We will explore a few of their myriad collaborations. So, prepare yourself for our podcast presentation about the monsters, mysteries, and murders in the movies of actors Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. Undead. So you you ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Not the third switch! Give my creation! gobbledygook to me it's a, it's just a company okay that makes eyeglasses marshall these things that are on my face i figured and i probably drive past all these places all the time but yeah. it's like you know it, it might as well be you know like like a cog factory like i've got no use for that that's like so me, i just don't even see it yeah that's like me driving by a men's warehouse exactly it's not my thing you know i don't know nothing about it and then i'll notice them everywhere. except that i'm gonna love the way i look <laughs> they guarantee it i know that much um Hey, Kat. Marshall, we're here. It's been a little while since we've uh, gotten together. As I mentioned in, in to you, yeah, as I mentioned to you just a moment ago, we've we've both had a whole COVID since the last time we got in front of the microphone. We've both had the COVID. <sighs> By the way, uh, listeners, you may—I don't know how you, you picture us talking—probably in a, like an actual studio with like headphones and stuff. But uh, the microphone's on a stack of books, and we're just facing each other, talking into the same microphone. It's very old school. So we're just breathing in each other's face for two hours. So you want to be really sure <laughs> you're not bringing anything to the table. Yeah, we both have, we, I think we both have some antibodies right now. Here's hoping. And I should say, oh. if you're listening and you hear any excessive throat clearing or coughing on my part, that's why I'm still dealing with some the remnants light, of COVID. The light tick of a lozenge <clears throat> clicking against your teeth. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. I probably have one of those going the whole time. Sure. Uh, is there anything that, uh, I mean, we've still been keeping up with each other as people off mic, anything you've done that's particularly spooky or just want to share with the people? I want to share with the people because you already know this, but I recently had my very first visit to Hollywood's very own magic castle. Yes. And that was one of the greatest experiences of my life. It was a banner moment for me as an Angelino in 15 years of living in LA. Like it was a highlight. 
like top five things I've ever done. And I bring it up because although magic is not necessarily spooky, it definitely can be. Yeah. It's definitely mysterious. They, they, they do lean into like the spooky. They do. There. Yeah. So one thing I'll say about it is um, one of the first things we did was walk back to, uh, we heard a piano playing yeah. and we walked back to this room kind of behind the first bar you encounter. We ordered a couple drinks and then we walk around and there's, there's a ghost piano played by Irma, this resident ghost at the Magic Castle. And you just ask Irma to play you a song. You request a song and she will play it. And she knows a lot of songs. You know, the piano starts playing itself. Irma is playing. I was so impressed. Just a dark, dark wood, burgundy carpet, you know, wood bars, like just a very like winding staircase type of old house that, um, I just wish I could be there all the time. It was just so cool. The magic was for enough money. You can be there all the time. That's true. As a member. That's true. The magic that we saw was truly incredible. And everybody, there's a dress code, so you know, everybody's dressed to the nines. And you have cocktails, and, and you're not we had dinner. No, you cannot take any pictures. So you, that was the other thing. I, I felt like I was forced to be really present because I wasn't feeling the pressure to, like, take pictures with everyone. And so it just felt like a night of just being present and enjoying some, like, pretty stunning magic and ambiance and having some good food and hanging out with friends so two thumbs up it was absolutely incredible yeah and it's crazy that you can't take pictures because everyone's dressed up and what a rare thing yeah to have you and your friends all dressed up yeah and it's like take one picture before you go in and you're done for the night yeah they have a red carpet outside the building and then in the lobby where you like pay your little entry fee Mm -hmm. and get the lay of the land before you go in through the hidden bookcase bookcase that opens up you can take pictures in there in that little lobby and they were like you can come back to this lobby anytime and take more photos if you'd like so and that had a little ambiance but the rest of the place no you can't my first time there and i've been there just a handful of times i was walking around just checking the place out between like dinner and a show and i run into um friend of the show brian rohan (gasps) wait where did you (laughs) know no no, we were at the same birthday party oh okay i I just mean i just kind of crisscrossed with him got it You know, he's running around checking stuff out, and I'm running around checking stuff out. And I go to Brian Rohan, and I I go, Brian, I just saw Eartha Kitt. And he goes, that's amazing. I just saw Nichelle Nichols. And then I had to think it over for a moment. I went, I didn't see Eartha Kitt. (laughs) I I also saw Nichelle Nichols. And I've just been thinking about that lately because we just recently lost uh, Nichelle Nichols. Yeah. And then one of our magicians was uh, Jason Alexander. What? Yeah, he was sort of trying his hand at magic, but it was mostly like math based. Uh-huh. So he was up there with like a whiteboard. I really want to go back. Um, I thought about my birthday's coming up, and I thought about doing the Houdini seance experience, but it's yeah. very, very expensive. I think it would be worth it, but you have to either have an in or pay. You can pay like a one night membership fee, which is hundreds of dollars, and then you all have to pay. Hundreds of dollars for the oh, yeah. dinner, plus to just each person's individual entrance fee. So that'll be maybe my 40th birthday. I don't know. Um, and parking. Yeah. It really adds up. It's definitely... I'll um, get you as soon as you show up. It's a night on the town, but I think that's part of what I loved about it, was that it felt like a classic old Hollywood night on the town. You dress up, Sure, and dinner, you're right there show. in Hollywood. Yeah. You're like yeah. behind the Hollywood and Highland <clears throat> structure. And in fact... 
where we were seated for dinner was like up a level or two and we were right next to a window and you could see down into Hollywood you see the twinkling lights it's up on a bit of a hill Mm -hmm. and there was like a schematic like a drawing of what it looked like when the house was first built it was built as an 18,000 square foot private residence actually now it's an academy of magic and a place for shows and stuff but it showed you what down below what you're looking at in Hollywood, what it looked like when the house was built. And it was like mostly nothing. And there were a few buildings that were already there that are still there today. But it was like very, you know, old Hollywood where it's like not a whole lot, not as dense. This was all orange groves. Yeah. And speaking of which, I was wondering how I would uh, segue. A thing that we did that's horror adjacent, but sort of one of those things where it's only in L.A., is uh, I recently joined my local Buy Nothing Facebook group. Oh, cool. I'm familiar. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I've gotten a couple things and I've given away a couple things. And because, you know, living where I do, I have recognized a couple of uh, of people, you know, that I know from showbiz that live in my area because yeah. I'm here in Burbank. One of them, I won't name, but let's just say Charles was in charge of her. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. But then there was the day that I contacted you and said, uh, Hey, Kat, would you like oranges from Rebecca McKendry's tree? And uh, for those who don't know, how would you, I, I've been thinking about this. How would you describe horror presence, Rebecca McKendry? Uh, she's a filmmaker and a film professor focusing on horror so she'll you know she teaches class but how did you first get introduced to her i listened to a podcast she hosted podcast and yeah so she podcasts and i you know i i think i've maybe met her once at some kind of like little horror event so i don't know her daniel knows her pretty well daniel plays dungeons and dragons with her husband and some other people but i'm just familiar with her as a really cool badass like lady of the night uh, meaning a lady of horror not she's not she's not a lady of horror she she, yes um a lady of horror and she yeah she teaches and she makes she makes movies she makes shorts she just made a feature that's about to hit shutter i think soon so so. yeah she's like pretty firmly planted in horror um was that who hosted the uh when we went that trivia night yes she was like very pregnant yeah about to have her first baby and the one time we went to horror movie trivia and it was a packed house and we just sort of eked our way in there. I think that might have actually been where she, where I first saw her or heard about her. And I think we ran into her in like a convention. Oh, yeah. We did go say hi. Because mm-hmm. she gave me a patch. I was looking at it yeah. and I was like, where's the price? And she's like, take it. She was at a merch table. Yeah. For the podcast yeah. at the time. Yeah. So speaking of free things from her. Yeah. I recognized her name in my <clears throat> buy nothing. And yeah. it's like, uh, oranges from my tree sitting out on the curb. Yeah. And I'm like, I, okay, I can make it over there. Yeah. And I asked you, I was like. Do you want oranges from Rebecca McKendry, filmmaker, professor, horror aficionado? Aficionado, yeah, yeah. And you wanted it enough so you could have oranges from the yard, yeah, of the Rebecca McKendry that like we had to try three times for a successful handoff. Did we? Oh yeah, I left it outside my door because you were blocked oh. from my home. Oh yeah, and then you're like, oh, I missed it. Yeah. Yeah. I I think we were just not going to stop. Yeah. And then I like had to take it and just like leave it on your porch. Yeah. 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 It all worked out. I think we made old fashions. With oranges. Yeah. From the tree. (laughs) Yeah. Of horror aficionado, Rebecca McKendry. Yeah. Spooky fruit. (laughs) 
Peter Cushing, you're known for your roles in horror films, but horror isn't a term you like, is it? It isn't that I object to it. I just feel it's the wrong adjective as applied to the films I do. Because horror to me is, say, a film like The Godfather, or anything to do with war, which is real, can happen, unfortunately, no doubt will happen again sometime. But the films that dear Christopher Lee and I do are really fantasy, and I think fantasy is a better, better adjective. I don't object to the term horror, just the wrong adjective. I like fantasy films. How did you start out in the acting profession? How long have we got? I was, of course, living in London in 1947, and I became an actor, and I worked in the theatre, doing everything, sweeping the floor and reading the lines for the actors and everything, and uh, pa painting the scenery, you know, and uh, all that. I learned the hard way, and it took me ten years to learn how to act, at least, and you're still learning. One is always still learning. stack of notes is right here on my phone. But I, I doubt I have as many notes as you have. I, I got a lot of notes. You always do. You wound up re-watching movies. I, sure. I kind of only watch them once, but you... Uh... Well, this took so long for us to actually, you know, get to the mic. I wanted to make sure I, you know, kind of had them fresh in my head. Yeah. So I rewatched the movies of... Kat, you wanted to describe what our topic is? I certainly can, because I did write down uh, what you texted me as, oh. as sort of a top-line kind of mission statement for what this episode is about. Yes. Uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, the movies they did together, along with a look at their biographies and friendship with each other. So this is our love letter to the... What's the... Oh, wow. I'm going to blame any word searching I do on COVID, just sure. so everyone knows. Uh, bromance. Oh, bromance. If you will, of okay. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. I summed it up with uh, the films and friendship of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. That was much more articulate with many less words. And here's an observation. Okay, so this is our 86th episode. Okay. The only other time that we've had a topic that just focuses on an actor, because usually it's just like topics or types of movies or individual movies. Sure. Or sort of like sub-subgenres. The only other time... Was Jamie Lee Curtis. Wow. Yeah. You'd think we would have done that more. You'd think. Um, probably because the horror icons, and this has been the case with both Jamie Lee Curtis and Cushing and Lee, we've already covered their stuff in other episodes. Yeah. In this instance, we've definitely done The Mummy that they did together. Yes. And check out our Legacy of Dracula episode. We cover the Dracula that they did together, which is why we won't have it on this one. I suggested that we choose... From the movies they did together, four films felt like a good number. Mm -hmm. And then we both did a fifth. Yeah. Individually. M my individual film, as you will learn, dear listener, doesn't include both of them. But it was a movie I came across in my research, and the description of it was so outrageous. And it's only Peter Cushing. Yeah. But I was like, I got to watch this one, Marshall. I just have to. So mine won't be with both of them, but I think it That's will be fine. worth it's something dis discussing anyway. That you wouldn't have even come across if you hadn't like, yeah. gone looking for Cushing and Lee. Yeah. Christopher Lee. Peter Cushing, the evil you may face this very night. For the people at home, 
who are, who is, who was, the actors, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee? I think it might be helpful to sort of go through each of their individual biographies, Okay, maybe. I mean, I wouldn't know how to sum up other than to say they're two British actors who starred in 22 something or another, or or 20 plus movies together between the late, early 50s. Uh... Well, there was some stuff that they were in together, but they didn't actually have any scenes together. They weren't actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that was the late... Late 50s is when they became... Yeah. Late you know, 40s is like when they first were in, maybe in a movie together, but not, not together together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. We have a visitor. Won't you join our little Together, they became a horror duo, not always pitted against each other, but certainly at first. One would be Dr. Frankenstein, the other would be Frankenstein's monster. One mm-hmm. would be Van Helsing, the other would be mm-hmm. Dracula. They would have sometimes opposing goals, sometimes the same. They'd be kind of like uh, frenemies sometimes, colleagues, but uh, with a bit of a competition between them. I'll tell you what it means. Absolutely nothing. What makes you so sure? For telling the future with a pack of cards. Complete rubbish. Sim, why are you afraid to try stuff? Afraid? <laughs> to participate in your ridiculous parlor game. Very well. Very well. Shuffle your cards. Foretell my destiny. I kind of broke out my research of, like, who is Peter Cushing? Who is Christopher Lee? And sort of trying to learn about their lives and, you know, what made them tick and all of that. Well, you know what? I know less about Lee, even though he's had this rather grand life. Mm -hmm. So can you start with telling me, uh, Kat, who is this Christopher Lee? Oh, Christopher Lee. We've had more steaks in his chest than you and I have had hot dinners. And I wouldn't be surprised if he stuck his fangs in my neck after that introduction. The Prince of Darkness, Christopher Lee. Um, okay, so Christopher Lee, and I'm realizing this is so funny, of all the things I wrote down about both of them, I didn't write down, like, birthdays. It w- I wasn't, like, oh. born. Well, their, uh, their birthdays are, like... Oh, one day apart. One day apart. But I don't... But the year, I can't... And they're not... They weren't born the same year, were they? No. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Peter Cushing is the older one. Peter Cushing was born in 1913, mm. and Lee was born one day later in 19... You know, you know in 1922, but the birthday one day later. Yeah. So, Christopher Lee, prior to his acting career, he served in the Royal Air Force as an intelligence officer, famously. Yeah. He also sang, which comes up later in his life as well. Sang opera. He's a lovely voice, yes. His mother was a countess. An Italian countess, was it? I think that's right. Um, I really like this detail. When he was six, his parents divorced. I don't like that his parents divorced. Sure. His mother married Harcourt Georges St. Croix Rose, a banker who was the uncle of Ian Fleming, who created the James Bond character. Yeah. Uh, author of the novels. So that means that Ian Fleming was Christopher Lee's step cousin, which is just kind of fun. Yeah. He did a little acting in school, but not a ton. I would imagine the normal amount that anyone does in a school play, things like that. I wonder if he was one of those guys who was tall his whole age. <clears throat> like, I was always a little taller than the other kids. Yeah. I wasn't one of those guys who was like short, 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 spurt. Yeah. I do think he was tall pretty early. And I know that when he initially thought about pursuing acting, people were like, you're too tall. Like, it will never happen. But I don't know how early that yeah, happened. He maxed out at 6'5". Very tall. How tall are you? You're like at least 6'2". I yeah. am 6'2". Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. 
I only know that because I feel I imagine you about as tall as Alec, and he's six two. So there you go. Cool. He didn't do terribly well at sports. Okay. Yeah. He traveled around a ton while he was in the Royal Air Force. And in fact, one year, he got malaria six times in under a year. Oof. Can you imagine? I can't imagine it once. No. Like, by the fourth time, I'd be like, or by the third time, I'd be like, I'm, I, I am I... I get a doctor's note saying, uh, Marshall has to leave war. Yeah. No, thanks. I'm good. Um, he spoke fluent French, Italian, and German, and then had kind of dabblings in other languages. Yeah. I don't... I mean, well, one of the first things I ever heard about him, I don't actually know how true it is, but anyways, like, you know, print the legend, especially when it comes to Christopher mm-hmm. Lee, is that when he was doing Man with a Golden Gun, there were like Swedish women on set and he just like learned Swedish just to like talk to them. Some people are polyglots. Like some people can really speak many languages and, you know, pick it up easily. So maybe he was um, famously in the Royal Air Force in his role in intelligence. He helped track down Nazi war criminals, which is just the detail you want to have in there. And That's so back cool. Back when they were young and could move fast. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now they're all old and they move pretty slow. Oh, yeah. Look, it's still impressive to hunt a Nazi, but let's oh, just yeah. say he did it when it was really hard. Yeah. they Didn't they just imprison like a 90-something-year-old man? Like yeah. just recently it was in the news. So that was probably a little easier to snag him, you know. Um, so he returned to London after all of his service in 1946. So he was offered his old job back with a significant raise, but he turned them down. He said, and I can't imagine after traveling the world and getting malaria six times and tracking down Nazis, he said, I couldn't think myself back into the office frame of mind. I can't imagine why. And at the time, the armed forces were sending veterans with an education in the classics, which he had. He spoke many languages, and he was very smart. Uh, So the armed forces were sending veterans who had these qualifications to teach at universities. So he could have, you could have had Christopher Lee as your professor if you were there at the time. But he felt his Latin was too rusty, and he didn't care for the strict curfews. I guess they put curfews on professors. So here's where we get the pivot into his acting career. During lunch with his cousin, Niccolo Carandini, at the time the Italian ambassador to Britain, Christopher Lee was detailing his war wounds. They were having a whole conversation. And his cousin said, why don't you become an actor, Christopher? Um, Christopher, you're so dramatic. Right. But he, and he was, like I mentioned before, he was told he was too tall. But he, I guess he just... I don't know what spurred his passion beyond just someone giving him the idea. And he was like, huh, I guess I will do that. So, uh, I, I don't know how acting was seen as a profession among the, uh, the upper classes. Right. But, uh, in an interview that I heard of his, he talks about having to go to his mother to like kind of break the news to her, kind of get permission sort of to be mm. like, I think I'm going to be an actor. Yeah. And she's like, really? I mean, I think she supported him, but it was like acting really. Yeah. But then I heard, like, you know, he was like a polyglot Nazi hunter before that. And it's like, okay, so then the Nazi hunter has to go ask his mom for permission. To... Right. Yeah, I, I get, you know. We, yeah. We've all got moms. Well, and, like, I mean, if you think about how, like, less than 100 years before that, actors were considered, like, that was the same type of profession as, like, a sex worker, like a prostitute. Like, it, it, it was... It was a, a low profession. Totally. So, like, I can't imagine the stigma takes a while to sort of come off. And, mm, and she's a countess. That's right. But he kept at it, and he made his film debut in 1947. And in his early career, he made an uncredited appearance in Laurence Olivier's film version of Hamlet. I heard he snuck onto the set. This was 1948. I didn't know that. He was a spear carrier. 
And Peter Cushing was, you know, in a named role in that movie. So this was their first film together, but they weren't in scenes together. Um, And his first film for Hammer was The Curse of Frankenstein, came out in 1957, in which he played Frankenstein's monster and Peter Cushing played Baron Victor Frankenstein. Uh, The cult following of monster and horror films is growing higher and higher, and one of the most famous stars, and I'm told the king of the current horror film craze, is Peter Cushing, who has starred in over six Frankenstein films. He has done such fantastic pictures as The Horror Express, The Creeping Flesh, and Tales from the Crypt. So, Peter Cushing had an older brother who was three years older than him, and when Peter was born... His mother had so hoped for a daughter. Did you hear this detail? No, I have a like a biography of his, but I started when he decided to move to Hollywood. Yes. Like that sort of caught my eye and I like started the book there. When he was very young, for the first few years of his life, his mother dressed him in girls' frocks, girls' dresses, mm-hmm. let his hair grow in long curls and tied them in bows of pink ribbon so others often mistook him for a girl. Um, he is of a delicate nature yeah oh yeah he's a he's a very effete man um i like this detail if we're talking about lineage his paternal grandfather toured as an actor with henry irving irving Mm. is widely we've talked about this on a dracula episode i think henry irving is widely acknowledged to be one of the inspirations for count dracula the title character of the novel and bram stoker was the business manager of the theater that henry irving was Okay, that guy. I guess I just remember the Irving part of the name. Yeah. Okay, so he was acting in the family already. And he initially worked as a surveyor's assistant. In his words, a glorified office boy. It was a very dependable and respectable job, but it wasn't very satisfying for him. So he took up acting instead. I want to be... An actor. He made his stage debut in 1935 and spent three years at a repertory theater before he moved to Hollywood to pursue a film career. In 1939, his father bought him a one-way ticket to Hollywood where he moved with only 50 pounds to his name. Yeah. Now, here's, here's where I got in. Yeah. Well, it was just, you know, a heck of a journey just to get to New York and then to then cross the country. This is a big country we got here. Yeah. And then when he arrived... He had, like, a letter of introduction from, like, like an actor that he, like, acted with who had been in Hollywood. So he, like, went to a studio. And I don't know if you've got his acting parts while he was in Los Angeles. And he was only in L.A. for, like, a little over a year. Uh, I'm kind of coming in in the middle, so I must have cut out something about the man in the Iron Mask, which maybe was an early role. Well, that was his first role. This part I know. Yeah. Uh, it was directed by James Whale, who directed Frankenstein mm-hmm. for Universal. Now he was making Man in the Iron Mask, and what he really needed, because the guy who was playing the Man in the Iron Mask, you know, it's twins, that's that's the whole story. So they needed someone to be the stand-in for eye lines and over-the-shoulder shots, and for when they'd actually, like, cut the film and, like, put in the other guy. Mm-hmm. And so, the role that he does have, which is minor, that was just kind of a bone they threw him, that say, like, hey, thanks for this thankless job. Of being a stand-in for the other man in Man in the Iron Mask. Yeah. Why don't you get on this horse? And, you know, apparently uh, he's not great with horses. He's also not great with, like, giving blood. Oh. I think it was. Uh, Who is? Well, when the the war broke out, he was like, well, I'm so far away from my home in England. Maybe I can do my part by, like, giving blood. And he, like, passed out. Oh. So somewhere in there, it was determined that he was unfit for military service. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember reading that. 
And then after having been in like a Laurel and Hardy movie and well, some that, other stuff. Well, that was the little detail I just wanted to add about that yeah. is because only a few days after filming The Man in the Iron Mask was completed, he was in Schwab's drugstore. Sure. Which, did we talk about this place already? Um, in life? Or on yeah. The, yeah. I mean, I've, uh, I may have pointed it out. It's Maybe. Where the Crunch Gym is now. Yeah. So he was there. And this is just such a Hollywood story. It was a famous hangout spot for actors. And while he was there, he learned that Hal Roach, the producer, was seeking an English actor for a comedy film starring Laurel and Hardy. So that's how he heard about that. So he went after the role and got cast. I think they're entitled to the royal initiation, don't you? By all means. It was called A Chump at Oxford, and it came Hmm. out in 1940. But then he got homesick and decided he wanted to go back to England. Well, not just because he missed mom's cooking, but because there was a war on. Well, that too, yeah. The Jerry Germans are coming across. I think he felt bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you thought getting to L.A. was was hard. Oh, yeah. He had to first make it back to New York. Mm-hmm. And then, like, make enough money to make it up to Canada. Where, because Canada joined World War II before, well, mm-hmm. long before mm-hmm. America did. And then, like, sign on as a merchant marine. So he could then, like, make it across. This man of delicate constitution yeah did not fare well but yeah. he made it he made it yeah he, he was in, it back to his shores like you said he was in new york for a little while yeah. and he did some voiceover work for radio for commercials and worked in a summer stock theater company yeah, to so get the money together just, i didn't realize he went up to canada that's wild yeah the money he made was to like finance making like that last leg of the trip mm-hmm. across into canada tried parking cars wasn't great at it Oh, Turns God. out there was enough acting work to float. Yeah, him weirdly. That. Yeah, he was like a working actor. And when he got back to England, that's how we supported uh, the war effort. Is, yeah. Is by like an acting troupe that would go around and entertain the service. Through art, I shall serve my country. Yeah, he performed for the troops, which is very charming to me. And that's how he met Helen. Helen. His Helen, his oh. wife, the love of his life, his reason for being. When I was reading his autobiography... I, like, went to the um, index, and I was like, okay, okay, uh, where does he play Frankenstein? And there's, like, two pages on, on Frankenstein. I'm like, oh, oh, that's not a lot. What about Van Helsing? And there's, like, half a page yeah. on these Dracula movies. His life story is leading up to meeting Helen, and the rest of the story is life with Helen until she passed away. What, what about life with Helen? Just, like, their favorite things to do and favorite meals and taking walks and... And, and how, how much you supported him when, when he was a struggling actor. And oh. she had to, like, sell off some old, like, family heirlooms. I think she got sick and had to have a hysterectomy and how she contracted emphysema. Oh. In the early 70s, passed away. And mm. the book pretty much ends there with him. Yeah, it was written in 1987, but it was him... Being like, we will meet again someday, my love. Oh, yeah. Well, a quote from him, if I may. Yeah. He said, she was my whole life, and without her, there is no meaning. I am simply killing time, so to speak, until that wonderful day when we are together again. And he just really lived for her. So he met Helen... She was a dancer, very beautiful. You can look up pictures of her. And in 1948, he was in Hamlet. Christopher Lee was in that movie as well. But Peter Cushing struggled greatly to find work in the ensuing years, and he became very stressed and felt he was suffering from an extended nervous breakdown. 
Delicate constitution. constitution. But Helen encouraged him to seek roles in television, which was a thing that was starting. By the way, if acting wasn't a low enough profession within acting at the time, television work was probably a pretty low. And that stigma remained. Television was not prestige until it was, you know, until like The Sopranos and, you know, Mad Men and some of these other. It took that long? I think so. Within the profession of acting? Yeah. I mean, think about the fact that Meryl Streep has now done television. TV has sure. only in the last 10, 15, 20 years become this desirable thing to do. And sometimes overshadowing movies for like the... And in England, I'm going to say theater was king. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Then movies as a distant second. Yeah. Depending what year it was. Then radio and TV. Yeah. But Helen, it was Helen's instinct. She was like, you should do television. So he did. To be or not to be. The verb to be is abolished in the 11th edition. That is the question. Uh, Shakespeare. But it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to... or, or to... I forget how it goes. Doesn't matter. By the year 2050, the whole literature of the past will have gone. He became one of the most active and favored names in British television and was considered a pioneer in British television drama, but he found the medium stressful. Which I can understand. I'm sure it was... Yeah. Oh, yeah. If there were two airings of something, they did it twice. That's right. They wouldn't just, like, show a tape of the first time. And during a brief, quiet period following his television work, he read in some trade publications about Hammer, a low-budget production company looking to adapt Frankenstein into a new film. He enjoyed the book as a child, and so he had his agent let hammer no he was interested in he was playing hot stuff yeah in general specifically he'd been in a production of 1984 that's right for television yeah i saw i watched a couple clips of that because you can find it on youtube and hammer one of the performances they did early hammer is a um a lot of trial and error i think they were taking bbc scripts and then turning them into feature films when i heard of hammer horror i thought it was all horror just because of that name. Turns out it was a guy's name. Hammer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was like... Or Hammersmith. When I heard of like, Hammer Horror, I was like, God, it's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, yeah. That sounds brutal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What a name. Mm-hmm. Hammer. What do you do? Horror. Yeah. Uh, but they hadn't done any horror, particularly. One thing that they did do was they would hire American actors to come into their movies, kind of fading American actors looking for a little second life in Europe. Mm-hmm. But for Frankenstein, they were confident enough with Peter Cushing. They were like, you know, we've got a star of our own right here. This is TV's Peter Cushing. Maybe we don't have to bring in an an American Baron Frankenstein Mm -hmm. for this movie. So that was different. And they had already done the Quatermass films, Mm -hmm. which I've never seen. And Mm -hmm. I really should. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the Quatermass films were like science fiction. Such was popular at the time. You know, worldwide. Mm-hmm. In the 50s, sci-fi really ruled over horror. But it also, like, got into horror. So it was like a horror sci-fi. Yeah. So based on the success of that, and then here comes an American, uh, Milton Sabatsky. There's been a few uh, behind-the-scenes names that come up a lot the more mm-hmm. I get into uh, Cushing and Lee. Mm-hmm. Milton Sabatsky would go on to create Amicus. Mm-hmm. As low-budget and scrappy as Hammer was, they had a lower-budget competition in amicus uh, scrappier perhaps mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um but he came to hammer and was like 
Frankenstein, what do you think? And as soon as they announced it, Universal, you know, across the pond was like, don't you dare yeah. do anything that we've already done. Yep. Which is to say, whatever additions they made from the book, which is, say, like, Lightning, that wasn't in the book, the flat top, the yep. classic Frankenstein look. Yep. Don't touch it. Yep. It's off the table. We will sue you two within an inch of your life. <laughs> yeah. Now, there are some things that it, it just speaks to the power of the 1931 James Whale Frankenstein, which is like that he's a baron. I believe that he wasn't a baron in the books, but we just know him as Baron Frankenstein. Yeah. So they went ahead and made him a baron. And I think some other details that you'd think like, yeah, Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> but it's like, no, that was actually like a universal invention. More than a hundred years ago in a mountain village in Switzerland lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. So this is where Cushing met Lee. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Curse of Frankenstein came out in 1957. First of the films that the two of them made together. One thing that I wanted to note about Peter Cushing, because I think he and Christopher Lee are... This is a way that I, like, besides the fact that they look nothing like each other. and But as yeah. I was trying to differentiate, like, who are these two men? Like, what what's their deal? This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. One thing that stood out to me from a few quotes from Peter Cushing is that he was conscious of what fans wanted to see. And he chose roles intentionally because of that, which is, I think, maybe equal parts, like, just economically sound because he wants... That's a smart move. Like, what do people want to see me in? I'll do that because I can keep working. But then also, I think there's something about it that's charming Because he's thinking, like, what do people want to see? So he says later in life that his career decisions entailed selecting roles where he knew that he would be accepted by the audience. Who wants to see me as Hamlet? Very few. But millions want to see me as Baron Frankenstein, so that's the one I do. Wicked, insane, evil. Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now... The monster was the master. Christopher Lee, on the other hand, um, this is a quote I found from him that I thought was a nice kind of foil for that quote from Peter Cushing. Kind of shows other different people. Yeah. So he says, I always ask myself, well, what else could I do? Making films has never just been a job to me. It's my life. I have some interests outside of acting. I sing and I've written books, for instance. But acting is what keeps me going. It's what I do. It gives life purpose. I'm realistic. He must have been pretty old. I'm realistic about the amount of work I can get at my age, but I take what I can, even voiceovers and narration. He just loved performing and working. I mean, it explains why he, like, I took a few notes about how when he was, like, in his 90s, when he was, like, 91, mm-hmm. he had a top song on the Billboard charts. That was like a Christmas song. A and heavy metal. A heavy Christmas metal song. Christmas song. And he also voiced, um, he became the old, like he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the oldest person to voice in a video game. So, I oh. mean, he just worked and worked and worked and he loved it. And I think, I, I don't want to go so far. I think it's overly simplified to say that acting was the love of Christopher Lee's life. I don't know that the, he would say that. May he rest in peace. But it does seem like he had a real passion for the work. And I, I know Peter Cushing was passionate about the work. But Peter Cushing's love was Helen. Yeah. Obviously. Yes. There is a town upstate, two days' journey to the north in the Hudson Highlands. 
It is a place called Sleepy Hollow. Have you heard of it? I have not. I should say, I didn't know anything of either of these men by name. And my first, like, understanding of Christopher Lee as a person mm-hmm. and an actor was you talking to me about him in Sleepy Hollow. 1999 sure. Sleepy Hollow, where you were like... the judge. ...love seeing him, but then you mentioned that your first thought was... Did they make him the judge because he's not really ambulatory and couldn't, like, stand up and whatever, and so they needed him to sit? And the answer was no. Like, he just, that was just the role. And I was like, why is Marshall so obsessed with this, you know, older actor? And now I know, you know, why it was notable that he was in that movie, and I think about it every time I watch that movie, but, um... Yeah, I didn't know, just to your point about... He wasn't a judge because he was infirm. He was just a judge. Correct. He was a judge. Yeah. And he's very authoritative with his big voice. Yes. Um, and, of, and of course, like every other red-blooded person in the world, I had seen the Lord of the Rings movies, but he wasn't, he was the character to me. Like, I didn't know who he was. You are aware that I am not really a wizard. I had not much, apart from us watching The Mummy, and I, I had an understanding of who the two were, sort of. But I really didn't before this, and now I really do. Now I really know, you know, a lot about them, which is really fun, because I like them a lot. Both Cushing and Lee had been in my life for a long time and just various things I'd catch on TV or the movies. <laughs> but I never really thought about them as Cushing and Lee until I went to work for the second video store that I worked for, which was better than the first, which is nice. And it was Movies Unlimited, which is now a sponsor of uh, Joe Dante's uh, The Movies That Made Me podcast. Because was it like a regional chain? There was only three stores, mm-hmm. but there was a mail order leg of the business. And as the as the internet put video stores out of business, it also increased the mail order side. So now the mail order part's huge, and the stores are gone. So um, as I understand it, some of my old coworkers went to go work for the mail order. Cool. So, well, now it's you know just an internet business. It's yeah. not like mail order in the traditional sense mm-hmm. as it used to be. Anyways. It was one of those stores that really, like, it had the goods. Yeah. And there were no teenagers working there. Like, in my 20s, I was, like, the youngest guy there, you know. So it was a serious video store. Serious video <laughs> store. They knew their stuff. Mm-hmm. And they had sections dedicated to, like, Andy Hardy movies, or they, their foreign section would be divided by country. Was and, this the kind of video store where, or bookstore, I'll see this there too, where okay. it's like, there's a little display that's like recommended by the staff. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I was given like a uh, 10 little slips of my name on it. To Cute. Like, to put on the staff picks yeah. shelf. Fun. But I was like, okay, where's Star Wars? It's like, well, Star Wars, because Peter Cushing was in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You have to go as like, isn't it in sci-fi? They're like, no, it's over in the Cushing Lee section. Oh. I was like, oh yeah. Cause of that guy. Yeah, it's Cushing. No, Lord, one is peaceful. We have no weapons. You, you can't... You prefer another target, a military target, then name the... Where? The... Name it, now, before I go home and... So I'd remember that Peter Cushing was in Star Wars. Right. And therefore, it's not over with the other Star Wars movies, because he's only in the first one. It's over with all of these horror movies yeah. on this one shelf. And if somebody asked for Star Wars, we would be like, we'd just get it for them. Yeah. We wouldn't be like... Uh, I believe that's in the Cushing and Lee section. Did you try over there? No? Okay, well, maybe that's why you didn't find it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my introduction to them as, like, a duo, and that, like, they had something special. That they would be, you know, in this section where, like, you know, certain directors got their own shelf. Right. We're now returned to the late-night movie, The Curse of Frankenstein. They still do these late-night movie things, right? 
All right. We're going to talk about okay. The Curse of Frankenstein. It was in color. Mm-hmm. And there had been horror in color before, so it wasn't like the first color horror movie. But it was the first color Hammer movie, and it was the first color Frankenstein movie. And that's pretty important. Yeah, I agree. Especially as they leaned into some of the gore. Oh, yeah. Which, there was just eyeballs. Yeah. And surgery was how they, by and large, brought out the gore. Like, like there wasn't, like, machete-wielding maniacs that would come years later, but... If a surgeon had something on, on the table, be it, you know, living or dead, there could be all kinds of gore. Yeah, given that... Um, In color! Given that Peter Cushing often plays, like, smart scientists or doctors, like, there's an awful lot of, like, either analyzing an eyeball or fluid or part of a brain or he's doing some kind of yeah. surgery. Like, that, you see him do that a lot. Yeah, that he's very go good at it. He's very good at, like, holding an instrument yeah, and uh, if he has a reputation as an actor, it's being a uh, boy. He loved his props. Props, oh, Peter. Oh yeah, props, Peter. Yes, what a detail. I came across <laughs> that as well. That um, Christopher Lee was impressed by how well Peter Cushing could manipulate, like a newspaper and a hat, and like do all kinds of business with his props during a scene. And so he nicknamed him Props Peter. Oh, I didn't know it came mm-hmm. from Lee. That's mm-hmm. great. Perhaps you had better start from the beginning. Where did it all begin? I suppose it was when I was a boy at school. I always had a brilliant intellect. We should say that the movie begins with him, like, in jail, telling his tale to, like, a clergyman. Mm-hmm. And so then we get this flashback with his storytelling where he's the young boy and he his parents are dead, right? His dad died years ago. Yeah. He became the Baron. Yeah. Now his mom's dead and yeah. he's just... The Baron now, and he can do whatever he wants. No and one's watching he, over him. What he wants to do is learn, so he mm-hmm. brings in his own private tutor and... Named Peter. Oh, no, Paul. Paul. There's a lot of uh, Pauls in Hammer Horror. I looked it up, I and there about. was an article, and they're like, so many Pauls. <laughs> but yeah, so Paul comes on board, and then they just go forward many years, and the tutor is now sort of his lab partner as they tried to revive a dog that yeah. was dead. What a scene. Paul, it's alive. Paul, what you've done. <laughs> Paul, we've done it. They have like a puppy dog and they bring it back to life. And they're like, great, look what we have accomplished. It was pretty fun, pretty well done. Like, you By know. By the way, we never see that dog again in the movie. But in case you're wondering what happened to it in real life, the actor who played Paul took it home and he said, oh yeah, they named him Frankie. Cute. And he's like, oh, we got like four generations out of that dog. Wow. Another detail about the guy who played Paul. Do you have his name? No, I just have the guy who played Paul. He walked out at the premiere and never appeared in another horror film. (laughs) Not a fan. Maybe he was not a fan. Thanks for the dog. No thanks for the gore. One thing I can't help but think about when I watch old movies that have animals in them, and they don't even have to be that old a movie, is I'm, I just always go like, oh yeah, that dog's dead now. I can't help it. It's a compulsive thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, that dog's definitely dead. I like knowing that there was a legacy, a little bit of a legacy. Yeah, that's what happened to that dog. Oh my God. I do want to say, just with regard to like the dog reviving scene, and like so much of this movie is truly thrilling. Like it's a really fun movie. But and I guess this was a trailer from Hell or something. Joe Dante calls this a cheap picture that looked rich. 
Yes. They do a lot with not a lot of money. That's true. Not big sets. They try to make it look big. Not a lot of extras. So no angry villagers. Can't afford all the villagers. No. It's mostly just like two guys and a couple of gals. I didn't even think about that. Like the scope of it didn't bother me because I was just too into the story. If they do it right, I think it, it should not be noticeable. It wasn't that for it's me. Like, wow, we're not getting a lot of exterior shots here. Just a lot of, you know, indoors. We're indoors. in the parlor. We're in the lab. Yeah, yeah. We're upstairs. We're downstairs. If you do it right, I think you don't miss it. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, it is in color and the director knowing how important it is um they say like for some of the outdoor stuff painted the leaves on the trees Mm -hmm. red and painted the grass green i I also heard at the end there's like three fire buckets something i've been noticing lately Mm. because so often you never see a fire putting out apparatus like a extinguisher in a movie Mm -hmm. unless there's going to be a fire in that scene Mm. so Back in the day, they would just have buckets of sand on hand. And in the jail at the end, there's just these three red fire buckets that there's no fire. Yeah. It's just something red he could put in the scene to just be like, remember blood? Mm -hmm. There's no blood in this scene, but Mm -hmm. uh, there's some red for you. Just to remind you of blood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've discovered the source of life itself. And we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is a, a tremendous discovery, but we... We mustn't share it yet. We must move on to the next stage. So here's a guy who is obsessed, addicted to the creation of life. And nothing will get in his way. And he does succeed in creating man. And I think this is a good time to mention that Peter Cushing... I mean, obviously, he did a bunch of horror movies. Like, he's not too good for it. But he always loved a good script and a movie that was as elevated as it could be. Like, he, mm-hmm. he loved a good script. And I thought about that. I had, I had kind of read about him saying that. And there's a scene in the movie... Or there are, there are some conversations that are more philosophical in nature, like, between... Sure. A lot of the movie is two guys talking. Yeah. And it's like discussing, which obviously the novel Frankenstein and the original film, like there is discussion. It it is this like idea of when man tries to play God and all of these themes. But yeah, I feel like there's a little more of that in this. And when in these movies that we've watched with these two actors, when Peter Cushing gets to like, when he has a good speech, when he gets to kind of wax poetic about something important, he really shines. Because Paul starts a... Pulling back mm-hmm. on, on reviving life is one thing, but creating it from yeah. scratch is it's a bridge uh, too far. Yeah, considering that they have to do it with the uh, corpses. And where does one get a brain? Yeah. I really am most honored to have you here, sir. I am most grateful to you, my boy. You know, I'm alone in Seville. And uh, to be guest in someone's home, especially such a charming home like this with such a Wonderful atmosphere. It's very precious to me. You are too kind, sir. How'd you like that scene slash stunt? Awesome. When they secure their brain. So cool. I mean, there's a lot in this movie that is, like, pretty effective still. Like, I really enjoyed it. I would like to show you a painting just before you retire. It's this one at the top of the staircase here. I mean, the moment where he pushes the guy, I immediately, like, screamed. I was like, what?! Ah, and he's Alec, nice Alec came in. Alec came in the room, and he's like, "What?" And I was like, "You gotta see this!" I like rewound it and showed it to him, and he was like, "Whoa!" And I was like, "Ah, go away." They didn't just throw a dummy off the balcony. 
No. It was a stuntman who mostly hit the trampoline that he was supposed to. They painted a trampoline the, you oh like the God. floor. And uh, he mostly got it. Boy, if you're after the guy's brain, because he invites like this really smart old yeah. man who doesn't have a family, but he's like a you know, genius. If you're just after his brain, don't send him head first off the balcony. It doesn't really make sense. You, you might bash his head in, and then where will you be? Yeah. Yeah. But he's like, hey, why don't I put him in the family crypt? And everyone's like, that's so nice of you. And he's like, yeah, nice. And he goes in and he takes the brain. Mm -hmm. But Paul's there to stop him and the brain gets damaged. But he still goes ahead and he like picks the glass out of the brain. Yeah. Which is another bit of gore that you see. Mm -hmm. My guess is like, it's probably like a cow's brain or something. Yeah. It's pretty gross. The eyes were uh, goat eyes <clears throat> that they Ew. got from the local uh, arbitoire. Abattoir. Abattoir. Mm -hmm. From the local abattoir. Oh, wow. Those were goat's eyes. So, all this, all this leads to the monster, the yep, creature. The moment. Which, which is Christopher Lee. It's pretty upsetting. They really wait a long time, and then when you finally get that reveal, it's like, oh my God, you know? It looks very different from the James Whale... Frankenstein. Yeah, and they didn't have a lot of like appliances to do it with, so it was just like cotton and like whatever was in the box. Mm -hmm. And he looks like a wreck. Yeah. He looks like a ghoulish wreck. And when Frankenstein's monster takes the bandages off of himself, it's just like, Ugh. yeah, like that's the way they went. Yeah, and no, it does not look like Karloff, and no, it does not look like the guy from <laughs> Rocky Horror. Rocky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he's just like. You are clearly a real patch job. Yeah. Here, you are a tire with too many patches on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, creature. Is this your creature of superior intellect? Your perfect physical being, this animal? Ask it a question of advanced physics. It's got a brain with a lifetime of knowledge behind it. It should find it simple. So, the story goes, there's like two stories. One, that, uh... Christopher Lee came into Cushing's dressing room and was like, I don't have any lines in this movie. And Cushing was like, you're lucky. I've read the script. Yeah. And what's also off told is that uh, Christopher Lee would like eat lunch with everybody in the makeup. But then it was only later when he was out of makeup that Peter Cushing saw him and screamed. Oh, yeah. I love which, that uh, anecdote. I don't know if either are true. <clears throat> Again, print the legend. Yeah. But uh, that's the kind of humor that they had and found with each other. Whoa, what they found that they had in common was, of all things, Looney Tunes. <laughs> that was simple. Warner Brothers cartoons. I didn't run across that before now, but you sent me a video earlier today that makes more sense now. Yeah. I don't know which one. I, I guess both of them. I, you know, they're both professional actors, and their instrument is their voice. So they just would crack each other up. Grown men, by the way. Did we just become best friends? Yep! We were never a fly on the wall for just what these two uh, goofballs got up to between takes, but uh, one thing that is that is well known is their mutual love of the uh, Warner Brothers Looney Tune cartoons. Dragons is so stupid!
Baskervilles. Take heed, and beware the more in those dark hours when evil is exalted, else you will surely meet the Hound of Hell, the Hound of the Baskervilles. So a couple years later, the yeah. two are reunited for... The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1959. Their third picture together. What was the second one? Dracula. Oh, okay. Yeah. The one we talked about before. The one we've already talked about. Of all of their movies together, I guess I, I really wanted us to, to do this one. Because it's it's horror adjacent, definitely. Oh, yeah. And because it's the two of them and because it's coming from Hammer, they really pushed as much horror as they could. But it's not... It's a mystery, mm-hmm. definitely. But I, I still wanted us to watch it because it's them... Reasonably working together, neither of them is the monster, mm-hmm. neither of them is hiding in the shadows or hiding behind makeup. It's also iconic because Peter Cushing plays Sherlock Holmes and like he got, he's had a lot of, he had a lot of attention over the years for his portrayal of that role. Like, yeah. you know, he was considered to be a, a very, very good Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Which he was. Some revolting sacrificial rite has been performed. What depth a human being can sink to. What human being could have done this? That is precisely what I intend to find out. Cushing was a Holmes fan and would even add things that, like, for example, there's a bit, the guy who loves props found props. Go figure. But it's a fact that Sherlock Holmes would use this, like, knife to keep his correspondence in place, like on the mantle, just by sort of stabbing it into place. And so um, Cushing was like, why don't I do that? This was back before Sherlock Holmes was just free to use. So a guy, again, an American, who wanted to be a producer, figured the best way to do that would be to buy some intellectual property. So he bought just the Hound of the Baskervilles from the Conan Doyle estate and went to Hammer with it. And they were like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's British. Yeah, check. We got a Cushing and Lee, check, check. And um, there's definitely a horror element in Hound of the Baskervilles, more than any other Sherlock Holmes, to be sure. Yeah. Like you were saying, it's not a very rich company. There's a lot of corners that get cut, a lot of things that have to get reduced. And definitely Hound of the Baskervilles is an exercise in that. Lower budget. You may notice a lot of Sherlock Holmes will have, like, exteriors of Victorian England in the fog and the clip-clop horses going by, and there's just none of that. There's not even, like, that shot where it's just, like, London, you Mm -hmm, know, smokestacks. mm -hmm. It just starts, well, it starts reusing some of the Dracula sets and even some of the Dracula music as we learn about Hugo Baskerville, the real bastard of a guy who hunted a woman down through the moors and was set upon by a hound of hell, and now all of his descendants are cursed for the misdeeds of this guy. May the hounds of hell take me if I can't hound her down! I should name drop, oh. so you mentioned the music. James Bernard is the composer they used in a lot of Hammer films. I don't know if he did necessarily Hound of the Baskervilles, but... Um, and he did Dracula, but it wasn't <laughs> his idea to reuse his own music. He wants to make that very clear. <laughs> but uh, I love the I love the scoring in these movies. And the opening credits, I think even before, like, the credits come up, it's just like, thunder! And drippy, not blood red, 
that just say horror, but it is like that drippy font, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is Hound of the Baskervilles. And the poster for it, when they promoted the film, it was like just this devil dog. And then down in the corner was like Peter Cushing, yeah. Sherlock yeah. Holmes. But in the middle, just like, Hellhound, yeah, come yeah. and see, come and see. But on our way to the Hellhound, they had to cut corners. So there was a bit in the book, like a carriage chase through the streets of London. And they said, how about <laughs> Christopher Lee stands perfectly still and we put a tarantula on him. Mm-hmm. And so like that is sort of what subbed in. Yeah. For the, it uh, packs a punch. For the, the carriage chase. Yeah. And it's in those scenes where we've got Cushing and Lee together again. So Cushing is Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Lee isn't Watson, although that would have been interesting. But to have a Watson that's taller than Holmes yeah. wouldn't have really worked. Yeah. Sir Henry, I am not a man to overestimate danger. But I must insist upon one thing. Under no circumstances are you to venture out onto the moor alone at night. Very well. If things have gone as far as this, I'll do as you say for the moment. But I'm not yet convinced that I need the services of a detective at all. Sir Henry, keep perfectly still if you value your life. So he's the uh, the Baskerville that they have to protect, the latest and the last in the line of the Baskervilles, who has a heart condition, and if something scares him too much, he could just die, and who knows what happens to the Baskerville fortune after that. <laughs> so um, at one point, at, at an early point, it's like, don't move, don't move a muscle. And like a tarantula like crawls up his arm until Sherlock Holmes can like knock it off. One little piece of athleticism for Peter Cushing to display. Yeah. Knocking that tarantula off. Move your head carefully. Then it's off to the moors, off to the foggy moors. And there's also like a, the ruins of a, not a chapel, but like some kind of a, it looks like sacrifices used to be done there. Yeah, it's probably some kind of a chapel. That glows green for no real reason. Because, oh, this is also the first color Sherlock Holmes film. How did you find the movie? I really enjoyed it. I mean, I didn't really know what to expect. I'm sure that I read that story because as the story unfolded, I was like, oh, this is feeling kind of familiar. But um, the costumes, the other characters, the misdirects, just the journey, the journey of the Sherlock Holmes mystery was just delightful. How can you be so certain that somebody took one of the bishop's spiders and deliberately placed it in Sir Henry's room? That it wasn't in the luggage he brought from South Africa? Elementary, my dear Watson. There are no tarantulas in South Africa. Just a delight to see the two of them on screen kind of like lightly sparring verbally. And And as people. Yeah. Which is why I wanted to look at this one. Yeah. Why did you run away from me yesterday when we had hardly met? Why did you kiss me, Cecile? I don't know. Tell me. I don't know. I don't know. So Christopher Lee, career-wide, had very little romantic leading man parts. And that surprised me. And then I was like, well, think it over. He's usually like a monster or something or a villain. Mm-hmm. Or he's just sort of kept at arm's length. But like. He's he, quite handsome. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's the other thing. And charming. He's a handsome guy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Who never gets the girl. And it's not like that's ever the point of the movie. It's not like Christopher Lee is unlucky in love. Mm -hmm. Hound of the Baskervilles does stand out. Look, it doesn't work out in the end. But 
he woos a woman. Mm-hmm. He has a kissing scene. Mm-hmm. And for a guy who you look at him and you're like, look at this stud. Handsome guy. Yeah. Deep voice. Tall fellow. I'm going to say he checks a lot of boxes. But not enough boxes to really be a romantic. Maybe once you're Frankenstein's monster, there's just no coming back completely from that. Mm-hmm. But even Dracula. Dracula is supposed to be this like sexy, sexual metaphor, if nothing else. But I guess... Yeah. If you're only biting necks and you're not kissing ladies, you're just not going to be the leading man. It's sort of like I'm equally surprised and then not surprised mm-hmm. when I found that out. Sure. But in this one, you know, he got to uh, kiss a girl on screen. Yep. the actual hound Mm -hmm. of the Baskervilles was a great Dane named Colonel. No. Who was super duper friendly and really couldn't be bothered to be mean. And you can kind of see this at one point when like the bad guy is revealed to be the bad guy and he gets attacked by his own dog that he is like trained and starved and put a mask on. So it looks like (laughs) a hellhound. Mm -hmm. And the mask they used wasn't great. It was made from rubber and rabbit skin. They did what they could. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you notice it. Yeah, but. they tried to make the dog look even bigger by taking children and dressing them up as the actors. Oh my god! And then they're like, "How is it? Uh, it is clearly children being attacked by a dog. Wow, wearing older people clothes. I know that's a trick that other productions have gotten away with, but for whatever reason, they, is it? Yeah. Wow. I mean, just one example is in Alien to make the ship look bigger. When they're coming off the ship onto the planet, that's like kids oh. in like space outfits. I didn't know that. But I guess it doesn't work in tweeds. Yeah, probably not. They just look well. like little fancy ghost children, <laughs> you know? But yeah, so when he's attacking, when the bad guy is getting his just desserts, you can actually see him like reach and like grab the collar and bring the dog's head back to him because the dog was probably just like, there's a whole world to smell. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, you just get the dog on top of a guy and you go back and you add... Ruff, 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 mm-hmm. It's, you know, hellhound enough. It's a big dog. Yeah. It does a lot of the work for you. Uh, those are the two Hammer films. The, these guys did a lot of Hammer films. Frankenstein got many sequels, not with Christopher Lee. We never said, but at the end, the monster falls into a pit of acid, so there's really no coming back. Mm-hmm. Although the two of them were together in several Dracula sequels, because Dracula can just come back from whatever. Although they never tried dropping him in acid. (laughs) Which is interesting because it's Frankenstein's monster that really drove the Universal sequels, but it's Baron Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, that drives the Hammer sequels. He's always popping back up, going like, all right, I kind of botched it up last time, but this This time time, it's going to be different. It's never, never works. But he's so. That, like, addiction to getting this right never abates. Mm-hmm. He's just always at it. And if, like, it goes wrong, he's like, well, next time. Mm-hmm. It's like, what about all the people that died? They just died in the name of furthering this cause. Yep. Science. Science. For two million years in these subterranean caves, a creature of superhuman evil was entombed in a wall of ice. Waiting to be free. Waiting to live again. 
telling me? That an ape that lived two million years ago got up to that crate, killed the baggage man and put him in there. Yes, I am. It's alive. It must be. Travel with us, if you dare, on the Horror Express. Horror Express. Okay, so now we're going forward many years. They've done movies for Amicus. They've done movies for Hammer. They've appeared in, like, a Sammy Davis Jr. movie together in just, like, one quick scene, but it's still counted among, like, the 20-some movies that they've done together. They've also made The Mummy, on and on and on. At this point, Cushing is 58 to Lee's 49. Okay. So they're, I mean, Cushing's always looked kind of old. He's a, a thin fellow. He's, yeah. When you watch him and you're like, you know, he's only 39 when he made this. It's just yeah. like, what? Yeah. <laughs> He's a very actually, angular was, face, which was, I feel like yeah. uh, is what really does the work there. He was actually 43 <laughs> in Curse of Frankenstein. Okay. So, wow. three years younger than I am I was now. about to say, holy shit. Yeah, he's just got a face for it. Yeah. Hide, but you can't escape. No one can stop the fury and the terror of the Horror Express. And it was at this point that... Uh, Around this, so this is like came out in seventy two. Yeah. So they they filmed in like late seventy one, and that was the first Christmas that Peter Cushing was spending without his dear mm. wife Helen. Cushing and Lee were close at this point, and Christopher Lee was well aware of how hard it was on Peter Cushing. But Peter Cushing, you know, he worked. He just kept he kept working. I think that was part of the way he dealt with it was just to stay busy. And I think he got there. mm Hmm. But he actually went to Spain. Okay, so this was a Spanish production. This uh, Spanish company had already made a movie that featured a train. So they had a model train. Mm. And they also had, I heard one, I've also heard two train car sets. So as many different train cars as they're in, in Horror Express, which takes place almost entirely on a train. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was always either the same or one of two train car sets that they just dressed differently. So Oh, cool. Yeah. Some of the train yeah. cars really reminded me of the train car you and I visited at the L.A. County Fair. And a whole train section that's yeah, always yeah. there. Yeah, we didn't realize that. We were like, oh, it's part of the fair, a train yard with all these train cars. And they were like, no, we're here all the time. Yeah. But we toured an old, tiny, restored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. But when I was watching Horror Express, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like that train car we went in. The Romance of the Rails. Yeah. So it's like they had the sets, so they went to some uh, blacklisted American writers who would then get credited under Spanish names because mm. under the Spanish government you had to have so many Spanish people working on your production. Whoa. Yeah. So they said, I don't know, make me a horror movie on a train. And so they did. And it's a heck of a thing. Take a ride on the Horror Express. Positively the most blood-chilling thriller ever conceived. So they got the British actors... Cushing and Lee. Starring Telly Savalas and those masters of horror, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Horror Express. They've been at it for years. This is 72, and they've been at it since 57. So they are a bankable commodity. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Cushing just did not feel up to it. Mm. But he went to Spain to tell them as much. Like, he wanted to tell them in person. That's wow, that's a, a gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those, like... You know when you're just kind of waffling on a decision? You're still going forward, but you know at any minute you could just pull the cord? Yeah. Yeah. I think it might have been that. Mm. So he gets there, and he's like, I can't do it. And we had to, like, convince him. Oh, I didn't know this. I didn't hear Yeah. yeah. 
it said convince him by like sharing memories of like, hey, remember the good times we had? Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's that or if it's just like, listen, man, you don't want to go home during Christmas and just be in your house. Yeah. I bet it was more of that. Why don't you stay here in Spain? You know, you're among friends. Just to give you an idea of, of where Cushing was at after his wife died, he thought like, maybe I can like give myself a heart attack and go join her just by running up and down the stairs. Oh, yeah. I remember reading that. Yeah. That was actually in his autobiography. Yeah. But he would have night terrors. Just like wake up. I don't know how everyone does when you have night terrors. And Christopher Lee would actually like sleep in the bed with him. Oh, so like he was buddies. When he woke up. Yeah. That's a good friend. I can't say if acting was extra difficult or it helped him take his mind off of it mm. because he's great in the movie. They're mm-hmm. both great. And if mm-hmm. I didn't know these things, I would have never, you know, you, no. you, you don't look at his performance and go, no, there's a deep sadness. Mm. No. Well, and in fact, of the movies we've talked about so far, this is the first one with a noticeable sense of humor. There are a few cheeky jokes. Like, one, I mean, you know, part of, we can get into the plot, but like, yeah. there's a point where people are suspected. It's like, we don't know who the bad guy is because it's like transferring between people and absorbing people's and the information people know through their eyes and then sucking them dry and then it can jump from person to person and somebody accuses one or both of them and the line is i think it's what if you are the monster and he says monster we're british you know which is great great because it's them great we're british yeah two of you together that's fine but if one of you is the monster monster we're british you know before getting to the plot i discovered this movie through watching um Online horror hosts. Mm-hmm. Today's horror host, by and large, isn't on a TV network. They're online. And they're just showing whatever movies they can, so those movies are public domain films. And this is one of the better public domain films out there. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. And so I would just sort of, like, catch it, like, in the middle. I'd, I'd just sort of tune in to some online horror host, and they'd be kind of in the middle of Horror Express. So I never got to experience, like the slow build of the horror on like just what this monster is and what it can do. Cause I would just sort of come in at weird times. Mm-hmm. So you want to get into the plot? Yeah, sure. Well, well, look who's here. Professor Saxon, I presume. Dr. Wells. And what are you doing in Shanghai? I've asked you the same thing. Oh, I'm just collecting a few specimens. Miss Jones, let me introduce Professor Alexander Saxton. He dabbles in fossils and birds. As is often the case in any movie he's in, Peter Cushing is, you know, very smart. He's a doctor. And Christopher Lee is attempting to transport a creature that he found in the ice on this train. And The Siberian Express. Mm-hmm. And even before he gets it on the train, it takes a victim. And when it takes a victim, it turns the eyes milky white, which is a really... Bleed from the eyes. Yeah, really horrifying image. Really scary stuff. Like, looks really cool. You don't see the creature. It's just, like, inside a box. And it makes its way on the train, and people start dropping. Mm Mm-hmm. If it looks you in the eye, it, like, now it knows everything you know. It kills you in the process. It kills you. Yeah, so it, like, absorbs information through your eyeballs. So I never got the pleasure of, like, watching this in order. So if you see the monster hand come out of the crate and, like, grab a nail Mm -hmm. and then pick the lock, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you put together that, like, 
his first victim was a with, yeah. like a lockpick like, uh-huh. baggage thief. Yeah. But now he has all of his brains, yeah. like, all of his memories. And one thing I like about this movie is there's an attempt with like some of the dialogue to talk about evolution and religion and like science versus faith and all this like yeah. uh, an Yeah, yeah. An attempt to make it a little more elevated in that way, but at the same time there's like the science in it is completely ridiculous. Like yes. when they do an autopsy on one of the victims, it's he says the brain has been drained. There are no wrinkles. I'm like, that's not how any of this works. And also the being is like energy that can go from person to person. Yes. Yes. It's basically brains as it goes. It's basically an alien space vampire thing. But one of my favorite details, it's so stupid and I love it, is that they examine a bit of the eye fluid mm-hmm. of the person that's been killed and they can see the nice. last thing they saw in the eye fluid. Yeah. So like, imagine like you died and I was like, I, I must know what happened. And then I take a little syringe and I poke it in your eyeball and I pull out some, I put it on a slide under a microscope and then I see an image of the last thing you saw before you yeah, died. I think Ridiculous. that might be a quick line where they're like, you can't do that. And they're like, you can if an alien took over your brain. Right. And then they start to... It looks pretty cool at first. And you have to remember that no one actually knew what the Earth looked like. Mm-hmm. So they, they have to be, like, just based on maps and be like, what is that? And they're like, I believe it's the Earth as seen from space. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, that's cool. And then there's pictures of dinosaurs. And now it just looks like a Viewmaster right. of, like, dinosaurs. Right. I think it's a pretty cool, like, pseudoscience and, and like, dumb having to make these leaps of reasoning aside. That reveal, I was not expecting that it was an alien yeah that like you're looking you know you're looking at the last thing that it looked at i I guess i should have known because it was in the ice but like not really it could just be a monster yeah but i was like no because they'd already established that you could see the thing that the person had seen and so when it was a view of the earth from space i was like wait a tick yeah right and i recommend watching it twice because Mm -hmm. it keeps its own logic really well and so whatever the alien is occupying, because it starts, first it's just a creature running around, but then it starts taking over people. Yeah. And whoever it's taken over, they've only got the knowledge of who they've taken over. Mm-hmm. And there's smarter people on the train. So it's kind of like, well, who knows what? Who can I benefit by taking over next? Right. Is it true you're a doctor? Ask me when I finish my dinner. It's urgent. What are the symptoms? He's dead. You saw him. Oh, that one. There's nothing I can do for him. Now there's one more dead. One of my soldiers. The same white eyes. I want to know the cause of death. The name Horror Express, I just assumed it would be a slasher. Like a madman loose on a train. Sure. Which, it isn't not a slasher in the sense that, like, people keep dying. I didn't expect it to be what it was. But I love the setting. I love the train cars and him having to come and get the doctor while he's eating. And, yeah. you know, on the in the dining car. Do you remember and, the line? No. The, uh, uh, well, oh, he go. Well, then he goes to his assistant. He's like, "I could use some help." And she goes, "Yes, well, at your age, I'm not surprised." Yeah. Because what the movie also does do, which was pointed out to me, and um, I've been listening to some British podcasts because who loves Hammer more than sure. the British and Amicus and just these guys in general, is that once you were over forty in like British movies, they wouldn't really give you a girl mm-hmm. by and large. Mm-hmm. And these guys are, you know, well over forty. Yeah. <laughs> but they still. Um, you know, n- nothing ever really happens, but one of them gets a, a, a lady spy mm-hmm. to flirt with. Yeah. And then the other one, I guess we should say that they're playing, like, adversary colleagues mm-hmm. in, the, in the world Cushing. of science. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, they wind up in the same train car, and one of them basically, you know, blocks the other one while he's trying to make time with this uh, pretty spy woman. He's mm-hmm. like, oh, so I don't have a ticket. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> he's like, maybe you can stay here. And she's like, maybe I could. And Christopher Lee's like, get out. Yeah. <laughs> the young lady's in trouble. Well, what do you suggest we do about it? Couldn't you? Couldn't you double up with somebody else? Miss Jones? Steady. I'm sure we can all get along very well together. But then Lee gets this, like, countess to flirt with. Yeah. And, by the way, she's got a husband, and, and she's, like, back in her train car with him going, like, which dress should I wear for the British man? Yeah. And he's like, well, you're thinking awfully fondly of yourself. Try the green one. I was like, these two swing. Yeah. I hope I'm not intruding. People on the train are becoming afraid, Professor. People on long journeys become bored, madame. They crave excitement. I found I couldn't really tell the two apart sometimes, you know, the two love interests. Yeah, it was confusing. We were about the same age. Uh, Don't feel bad, because they were both voiced by the same woman. What? One of them was dubbed? Both of them were dubbed. Oh. Everyone was dubbed. What? If you recall, just for reference, I know we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which gets into the Italian. Yeah, spaghetti westerns. The way they would do it, the Tower of Babel, where anybody from any country would be in the movie, they just speak Speak their language. Speak their native language, yeah. And everybody gets dubbed later. Now, if you've got a couple of British stars, when you're doing in English, they dub themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you get voiceover actors for everyone else. Telly Savalas, also in the movie, Mm -hmm. he dubbed over his own voice. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, the two women, they got dubbed by the same woman. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of Telly Savalas, whose whose name I had heard, but I don't know who the hell that is. Send a telegram. Tell him that Captain Kazan, he knows that a horse has four legs. He knows that a murderer has two arms. But still, the devil must be afraid of one honest Cossack. Hmm? Now you do. Kind of. Because he is in your face in this movie. Well, I made a note about this because I I just said it's so strange seeing a moment in a movie where it's a character reveal that's a name actor. Like, I think I knew I was supposed to feel some type of way about this the actor. The way he was sort of revealed first behind a thing, then in front of Oh, yeah. It was like they made such a thing of, like, this hero shot. Like, who's this guy? I mean, he's not a hero. But you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. making a meal out of revealing this actor. But I, I was like, I get, I don't know who this is. And he just kind of takes over. And I'm like, who is this? Who is he? I feel like I heard him mentioned in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, he did a movie with Rick Dalton. Yeah. When he was making movies overseas. Yeah. Which is something Telly Savalas did. Uh-huh. He was in the movie that they had to train from. And they also uh, had him for three pictures. Okay. So they're like, great news. We're reusing the train. Uh-huh. And we're reusing Telly Savalas. Right, right, okay. So he comes as a, Was he, uh, like, beloved or something? Like, what's the deal? What kinds of characters did I, he play, usually? Well... Do you know? I, I think don't... he had an evolution. Uh-huh. Westerns aren't... Well, he, he, he really probably broke big after the Dirty Dozen. So, like, army pictures, probably. Oh, he's in the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. I mean, when I say I know nothing about this man... Well... I've never seen the Dirty Dozen. I just know the title... After making movies in Europe, his biggest thing is the TV show Kojak. Oh. Where he played the police detective Kojak. He had his uh, shtick. He had his, you know, who loves you, baby? Okay. As a very successful TV detective. Okay. Okay. If you were to ask anyone today, like, 
Tell us about us. Got it. Where would I know him from? The first thing you hear is Kojak. Well, he's definitely larger than life in this movie. Boy, ain't he? Yeah. When you're needing it bad, cause a pop time's too bad, I'm gonna look at you and I'm gonna say, Who loves you, baby? By the way, they're going through Siberia. So there's a lot of parallels between this and the thing, I the short story. literally wrote a good double feature with the thing, question mark. Just, it was just my thought. I was like, maybe it's because I've been going to the New Beverly more lately, you, getting back into it. You're thinking in terms of I'm double features. I'm thinking in terms of double features more these days. And I was just like, wow, if I were going to program a night with someone who had never seen the thing, I'd be like, ah, oh, we'd start with Horror Express, and then we'd watch the thing. The Who Goes There, the original short story, which deals more in like taking over people than the first movie version of it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you read up on Horror Express, people will say, adapted from Who Goes There. Mm. And it's like, well, if it was, they never they never officially yeah. did it. Yeah, yeah. But the proof is on the screen. Sure. It's a lot like Who Goes There. I'll have you sent to Siberia. I am in Siberia. And um. like the ice station... They're in Siberia. Yeah. It is cold and unforgiving. When you may consider, why don't they just get off the train? Yeah, no, you can't do that. Because then you're in Siberia. Literal Siberia. Mm -hmm. The thing by which other cold things are compared. Yeah. But he comes on as as the... Well, he comes on, you think he's going to sort of take care of things, but he doesn't get very far. Mm. Because not long after this, the creature, they never name it, the Mm -hmm. alien, goes into this Rasputin-like monk... And that monk just wants to be on the winning side, if you ask me. Because he's super religious, and then he thinks the devil's on the train. And when he finds him, he's like, let me serve you. And it's like, okay, you weren't so much with God. Or maybe you just went with whoever showed up first. Mm-hmm. And who showed up is this alien who was like, get away, you bother me. Yeah. Until he needed a new body to hide in. Yeah. And he yeah. goes into the mad monk. And then he basically takes out all the Cossacks with his brain and they all drop now it's not like someone's working in the shadows now it's just obvious there's Mm -hmm. an obvious big threat and it's dangerous and everyone's running to one side of the train and he's running the other side of the train and at one point once they start actively fighting um christopher lee with the lady has to make his way through zombie cossacks Mm -hmm. and look i love those hammer films but they never gave me a room full of zombies. Yeah. Essentially zombies. Cause yeah. He, now he's he's reanimated them with his brain with a singular purpose. Mm-hmm. And he's got to fight his way through them to get to the other side of the train car. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. And just another layer. It started as like a creature and then it became like a body snatch. And now it's just like fight a room full of guys with white eyes. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Me too. Good fun. I really did. I hate this movie. No one's ever seen Horror Express. It's a fine movie, but also I think a lot of people get exposed to it because it's public domain. Mm -hmm. And that helped it become the centerpiece of an episode of Shudder's Creepshow, where a guy invents a device that'll put him into the movies. Mm -hmm. And so he goes into Horror Express and, like, interacts, and he's got a crush on the actress who played the Countess. Yeah. But he's got a jealous (laughs) wife, so what's she going to do? Might put him into another... Uh, more dangerous. Well, it gets pretty dangerous in Horror Express. She really didn't need to, like, revenge right. by switching out the movies with him for another public domain movie with zombies. Night of the Living Dead. Nice. But if he'd really just stuck to the narrative of the one he was already in, he yeah. would have met with a train car full of zombie Cossacks. Yep. 
corruption is not a woman's picture. Therefore, no woman will be admitted alone to see this super shock film. Corruption. Cat, the movie that you went on your own to watch, chronologically, where, where's that falling in all of these? The movie I went to watch by myself. Never seen. Mm-hmm. 1968. Okay. So a couple years before Horror Express. Okay. It's a film called Corruption with Peter Cushing. No woman will dare go home alone after seeing Corruption. What drew you to this? I'm sure I was, like, looking at Peter Cushing's Wikipedia or something. And I ran across, you know, reading titles, like, things they were in. And this film was billed as so horrific that, quote, no woman will be admitted alone into theaters to see it. All right. Sounds like a challenge. No woman will be admitted alone. I was like, I gotta watch this movie. It is a 50-year-old tagline, and they hooked you with it. They got me. Marketing. It's like like stepping on an old landmine. Yeah. It's like, it's still active. Yeah. No woman will dare go home alone after seeing corruption. Therefore, no woman will be admitted alone to this super shocker. This is not a perfect film, but if you want to see another side of Peter Cushing, you've got to watch it. And the other thing that's unique about it is that it was a contemporary movie. So it took place in present day when which, it was which made nothing we've watched nothing we've talked about so far has yeah so the basic plot is that peter cushing is a surgeon who has a younger hot fiance who is a model mm-hmm. a fashion model in swinging london in the 60s so like the opening of this movie is a party straight out of Austin Powers. Okay. Just, it is my happening baby and it freaks me out. Everybody's wearing like Austin Powers outfits, dancing. It's wild. 68. Freak out, baby. Come on. That's it. That's it. Oh, sexy. And it's a party thrown by like a photographer she knows. So everyone there besides Peter Cushing's character, they're all young and artsy and they're all like models is, or whatever. He, and they're like, do they, do they let him like do anything hip or is he just sort of serving? No, no, he needs to get home and get his sleep because he has surgery in the morning and his fiance won't. Um, trust me, this is important. I'm laying some groundwork. Okay, okay. She's like, Oh, settle in. We're having fun. It's a party. And he's like, I really must go. Sit in my weird chairs. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had a heavy day. I have to operate again in the morning. But can we slip away now? The party's just beginning. Yes. Gas, isn't it? And she rebuffs his many requests to leave. And she goes and gets in front of the photographer. He's got a whole setup. He's taking pictures at the party. There's like a backdrop. Okay. Lights. Real heavy lights. And oh, no. the photographer starts encouraging her to, like, take off the, her clothes a little. And she's, like, removing items of clothing. And Peter Cushing doesn't like this. And he gets in a fisticuffs with the photographer, at which point a very, very heavy light falls down. The, like, like light while bulb. He's fighting? They run into it. The light bulb bursts and, like, falls on her and burns her face horribly on one side. Oh, no. She's a model, Marshall. Remember? She's a model. No, my face is my job. My face is my job. Okay. You know, if she's a model and one side of her face is horrifically burned, she's never going to work again, right? No. So while she's recovering, she's like big bandage on her face. Peter Cushing, the surgeon, just immerses himself in trying to figure out how to fix her face, how to restore it. And he figures out that it's all about the pituitary gland. So he 
Um, He's advancing science to fix his wife. Yeah, yeah. And he pulls some strings and does some unethical doctor things to get into the morgue and extract, like, the pituitary gland Mm -hmm. of this corpse. He does this procedure on her, which he does many procedures, but the first procedure is very, like, it's very intense. They're just playing a heartbeat. Like in the background, as he mm-hmm. and they take you through the procedure very slowly, and he's like injecting her face, and it's you know Peter Cushing. See, just, I, I guess I had thought that she had died, and he was trying to bring her back to life. No, she survived. Maimed and trying to make her pretty again. Yeah, it's kind of like you know on Mad Men when Betty. It's like the first season. She gets into the car accident, and I guess Sally maybe hits her head, but they're fine. And she's like, what if she'd gotten a scar in her face? Like, her whole life would be ruined, right? It's sure. kind of like, I mean, this one's way worse. But it's like this idea that, like, your life is not worth living if you're maimed in any way. Especially if you're a model. I believe I've discovered an entirely new way of controlling the endocrine system to promote tissue growth. You've found a way of destroying your whole career. Now, Steve, undo me. There's nothing you can say to me that I haven't already said to myself. I know exactly what I'm doing. It works. It works. Her face is better. Oh, for now? For now. Oh. After like a week or so, their face reverts back to the scarring. This is not real medicine. But <laughs> Don't try this. And then he figures out it's because the tissue was not alive. Last time I used dead tissue. It must be human living tissue. You'll be all right then. Now, does the pituitary gland have to come from women? Well, or they're just easier to catch. That's a really great. I didn't even think about that. Well, this uh, is some fuzzy science. I, it is, and he always takes them from women. So I, I guess so. I mean, it's a hormone gland, a okay. hormone excreting gland. So I would imagine, yeah, sure. time he does this procedure it does he, he can't it works until it doesn't so he has to keep killing women mm. and the like you know it's set in modern day so that's an additional layer i mean present day 1968 like, there's some really modern camera work in the sense that like you're seeing him it's like a pov of you as the victim and peter cushing on yeah peter cushing on top of you he's strangling and going and his hair's falling in his face and like chasing down women and like murdering a woman on a train to get her pituitary gland and then hiding her bloody body underneath a seat in the train car. I mean, I was like, there were parts of this movie where my jaw was on the floor. I was like, Peter Cushing. I guess it really helped that you'd already seen him in, you know, yeah. several other pictures. Yeah. So it wasn't just like, then this guy kills these women. Yeah. But now you're watching it as then Peter Cushing. Bleh. Yeah. It's, it's, Attacks a, a woman in a it's some quite tawdry, like smutty graphic imagery it's of him. Sorted. Yes, murdering women and then surgery after surgery. Please, John, I need you. What for? To kill? To kill some more? How many times must I kill? Needless to say, like, you can't go on like this forever. He develops a crisis of conscience, and his fiance is like, but you must, you must do it again. I must look perfect. And then some other things ensue. It it felt very summery to me. It, like, summer was a good time to be watching it because okay. they go to, like, a beach house for a good bit of the, towards the end of the movie. And I don't know, I just, 
It was a delight. I'm so thankful that I watched it. It really showed me another side of Peter Cushing. You can't escape the shock, the terror of corruption. So... Peter Cushing later talked about this movie and said it was gratuitously violent, fearfully sick, but it was a good script, which just goes to show how important the presentation is. But you can tell how shocking they're trying to be. Where will the bodies turn up next? Under a car seat? In a valise? Or in a deep freeze? The one that I went off and watched on my own was The Skull. And The Skull in question is the skull of the Marquis de Sade. Yes. And this skull does not bring good luck to whoever has it. Never before such diabolic evil as the skull. I found in the morning that the skull had been removed. Who removed it? Those who use its power. Invisible beings spirits from a strange evil world the moving skull spreads its shrieking terror everywhere peter cushing is like a collector of like occult items and he's like i'm writing a book on what drives people to evil so he doesn't really believe any of this did you say when this movie came out 65 and was it a period piece no no it wasn't oh interesting yeah but it was very much like a drawing room drama sure it was kept in like this guy's house and then this guy's house and then this guy's house so there wasn't a lot of like let's go exploring 1965 like it sounds like your movie did Mm -hmm. a bit more of yeah it was based on a short story by robert block who wrote psycho Uh uh-huh it was in a magazine back in 1945 so then it got adapted and some stuff was added to it because it wasn't a very long story but christopher lee is in it but his credit is guest starring christopher lee which is a weird thing to put on a movie but it still lets you know about how much you should expect to see Christopher Lee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, all right, he's not going to co-star. He's got that little odd credit. I don't know if you've ever, just switching over to a, a different set of low-budget horror, um, Roger Corman mm-hmm. has this nudity rule that he would, like, give to his people making movies for him. And he had it all worked out, like, mathematically. He's like, you got to have some nudity here and some nudity here. And some nudity here. It's the candy striper's job to make the patients stay in the hospital more pleasant. Then a viewer would like, it would feel as if they had seen more than they actually had. Ah. Based on when it appears. Mm-hmm. I believe you can also mathematically do like a cameo that way. If you mm. space them out and give them like certain scenes of like importance in the film. Mm-hmm. Not just like how you doings, but maybe like act breaks or like certain information gets revealed. During their scenes. Because I watched it and I was like, what? It's a Cushing Lee film. And then I found out he was only on set for like three days. And I'm like, watching it a second time. Well, maybe he's not in the movie as much as I thought. But he's in just like all the right places. Because he's the guy who had the skull before. So he's like the cautionary guy. And he's like, don't do it. Yeah. It got stolen from me and good riddance. And now you've got it and get rid of it. Yeah. And then you get like a scene where he's attacked. And then uh, so long Christopher Lee. Yeah. But how can a mere skull be dangerous? Unless your mind makes it so. Desaad said he wasn't mad. And I believe it. He was far worse than mad. 
he was possessed. Possessed by an evil spirit. A spirit which still inhabits the skull. But it maybe instead of just timing, maybe you can just credit to like his screen presence or the chemistry between Cushing and Lee or whatever, but it doesn't feel... You time it with a stopwatch. Yeah, he's not in the movie very much. But some factors have combined. It doesn't feel like he's not in the movie very That's much. That's nice. It feels like a big presence. Yep, yep. To me, it's a very much a Cushing Lee film. And a lot of the movies that are on the list that we originally worked off of, they might have like one scene together sometimes or it's... Uh, oh, this is an Amicus film. Mm -hmm. You know, saying Amicus. Yep. I think a lot of when people are talking about Hammer Horror, they just sort of lop in Amicus to Right. That. Hammer has become sort of like what you initially thought it was, which is just like, it seems like a genre, like a subgenre of yeah. horror. So that's what it's become colloquially, but it really yeah. refers to the production company. But a lot of times Amicus and Hammer, since they're being made around the same time, feel so of Some of the same filmmakers, mm -hmm. a lot of the same actors. Although Amicus mostly did, if you see from this time period in this kind of cast, an anthology film, that's usually Amicus. Okay. Oh, that um, Tales from the Crypt that you, you told me to watch, that was Amicus. And they mostly did anthologies, but The Skull is one of their uh, feature-length one-narrative films. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's like one detail I really found about Peter Cushing's part in the Tales from the Crypt movie from, when was that? Seventy. Um, Let's just say well before the HBO show. Oh, yes. Even though it was it was still the, the Tales from the Crypt property taken from the EC Comics. 72. 72. Okay. So this is also around the time of Helen's death. Mm -hmm. And we meet Peter Cushing as a widower. Oh, do you want me to go into it? I'm ready. Let's go right into it. Okay. So the reason I wanted to watch it is just because when I was reading about Peter Cushing and his love, Helen, and all of that. I came across this detail I just couldn't believe because I was like, oh, this is just so painful, which is that there is... So Tales from the Crypt, the movie, 1972, I didn't watch the whole thing. I just watched, like, the beginning to sort of get a sense of what our framing mm -hmm. was, which is that there's a group of people touring crypts, it yeah. seems, and, eh, and they run across this guy who I'm like, I guess he's the crypt keeper? And he seems to know a lot about them, and he, like addresses them individually and then you see their little story and that's the movie and now who's next perhaps you but the reason i wanted to watch peter cushing's segment is because what i'd read was you know he plays this widower and that he was supposed to talk to himself or something in the script, and he suggested that his character should talk to his a picture of his wife, who was dead. And they let him do that and called her Helen. Yeah, I picked up that he called her Helen. Yeah. Was that a picture of Helen? That I don't know. I couldn't figure that out, but in The Satanic Rites of Dracula, a picture of Helen is supposed to be on his desk. Oh. And I kept watching like just scenes with his desk to try to see if it was the same picture as in Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. And, I mean, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Are you there, darling? Are you there, darling? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Is there any anything you wish to tell me? Now, by now, 
I mean, I know 72 is kind of right on the turning point. Was his wife already dead? Yeah, it says, I mean, the source that I found said Cushing used the emotions from the recent loss of his wife to add authenticity to his widower character's grieving. So she and was dead. He aged so much. He always looked like kind of an old guy. Yeah. But, you know, he aged so much after his wife's death that in the satanic rites of Dracula, he came back as like a Van Helsing character not the original but like a descendant and then there was going to be another character played by the actress from a absolutely fabulous mm. she was supposed to play his daughter but he looked so mm. old that they just switched her to granddaughter wow like they were like and she's her granddaughter yeah no work no children no one to make toys for you never mind We've always got each other, haven't we, my dear? It's all that matters. He does look very old in this. And he plays a retired, like, trash collector. Actually, he still has the job. One of... Oh, he does. He's at the tail end of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's a big plot point. Yeah. And he's this great old man who loves the children and loves his dogs. and He, like, makes toys for the children and they visit him every day and they love visiting him. This is a hard little segment to watch but also just i think excellent and if you're listening to this save it for valentine's day <laughs> i don't see why but okay um it's pretty depressing but it's like yeah if you're happy on valentine's day and you want to be brought down a peg or two yeah then it's by a, all means if it you're is already a, sad give it a miss it is a dark ass story yeah because um, everything he has basically gets taken away from him yeah because his across the street neighbor doesn't like how he keeps his house in his yard and thinks it like brings down the neighborhood and wants him out of the neighborhood and they basically get him fired from his job so he can't collect his pension they take away his dogs yeah they take away his dogs and they send oh god they send him like poems like Valentine cards. Valentine cards, supposedly from people in the neighborhood. And he's like, oh, what's this? This is so I've, lovely. I've received so many Valentines. And they're all just awful, hateful things. Every poem is like a hateful poem about how he should just, like, kill himself. And then so he kills himself. It's awful. And, um, but, you know, but then there's a... Some revenge from beyond the grave. Oh, really? Uh, that I think that revenge moment makes it all worth it for me because it was so ridiculous. But, um... I came for the sentimental Helen of it all, and I stayed for the great revenge at the end. But it's yeah, it's a hard to it's hard to watch. Yeah, he, the guy gets his comeuppance. You were mean and cruel right from the start. Now you really have no. Let's transition to something that's a lot more fun. It was fun. Which is our so, last movie. House of the Long Shadows. Which came out in 83? Yes. 1983. I didn't know anything about this one, and boy, did I have a good time. What lives in this house? No one would want to live in Balpatermana. What stalks these halls? It's a cursed place. Yes, I saw the movie. What hides in these shadows? And who is playing that piano? Welcome to the House of the Long Shadows. This might have been the first horror movie I ever watched. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. Where do you think you saw it? 
at home on HBO. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So if it was 83 by 84, it would have come on HBO. It would have been about eight years old. It had a PG rating, mm. which is, you know, PG-13 wouldn't be invented for, like, another year. So it was just shown in the you know middle of the day, probably, or sometime yeah. when I could catch it. Which I think is fine. I remembered a few details from, mm-hmm. from the movie, because I rewatched it did in it, 2020. Did it scare you at all as a kid? As a kid? Very much. Oh, okay. And we had family friends who lived in a Victorian home. And they had a grandmother who couldn't get out of bed much. So they had installed an intercom system. And I knew that she was kept in the room. And one time my mom brought me up to like say hey to her. And I was just like, I don't know what she did. Yeah. For them to lock her away oh. like the character. Oh my gosh. In House of the Long who, Shadows. Who they say did very bad things. Yeah. Yeah. And she was Scottish and I couldn't really understand her. I thought she was a witch because she cackled. Well. Um, you were probably right about that. And then that. years later, I had like a writing assignment for like creative writing class. And my mom was like, oh, what are you writing about? I was like, oh, that scary time. I had to go upstairs. And my mom was like, yes. what? You thought she was scary? And I was like, at the time. And she of was like, course. But she did all this charity work. And I'm like, I didn't know that. Old people smell funny when you're a kid. And like, you know, you have this one association. And like, it's, it's a scary thing. Yeah. And. Really, I took everything in House of the Long Shadows super seriously. Wow. I know it was playing on tropes. Does, tropes only work if you've seen them before. That's like me watching Arachnophobia as a kid and being absolutely petrified and not realizing it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. A, a thrillomedy. Yeah, a thrillomedy. And I didn't know that this movie was basically using the Mount Rushmore of Boogeyman. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I just brought them all in on face value. Yeah. Vincent Price, that's me. Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, John Carradine, and Desi Arnaz. The Inception is um, it's a canon film. And the two guys who run canon, um, like Gollum and Globus, I'm not sure I'm saying that exactly mm. right. They were like, let's make a horror movie and we'll get like Bay Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And then someone had to tell them, they're dead. Yeah. I don't know if that really happened, but it's in a, a documentary about canon films. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, get who's alive. And so they got, well, Cushing and Lee, bam, bam, Vincent Price. Yes. Hot off of Thriller. Yeah. Can you dig it? And John Carradine. Yeah. John Carradine, I know I talked about him, how he took over playing Dracula. And boy, that guy worked and continued to work as an old, old man. And, and you watch The Howling. Mm-hmm. From a little before this, and there's John Carradine there. He was already really old. Yeah. And now he's even older, but he's still at it. I heard he fell asleep during one of the uh, dinner table scenes. Cute. No shade. I don't know how old he was. I didn't write it down how old he was, but Cushing and Lee were tipping the scales at Lee was 60 and Cushing was 69. Wow. And I watch like every scene that takes place on stairs, and there's a few. They filmed in an actual, like, house in Mm -hmm, Wales. mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, their knees. Take it easy on their knees, these poor old men. I mean, Peter Cushing definitely feels and seems very old. I feel like Christopher Lee feels pretty spry for 60. Yeah. No, he was. To me, yeah. But, yeah, their knees. I mean, you know, sometimes my knees hurt and I'm not 40 yet. So, 60. Exactly. Yeah. Would somebody be good enough to tell me just exactly what is going on, please? A family reunion, sir. I would have thought that was obvious. 
So this is a very modern tale that yeah. becomes about the past, but there's an author who's meeting with his publisher in... London. I think London, yeah. And they're just talking about his next book, and and they make a bet. And I forget the exact premise where he's like, oh, it's not hard to turn out XYZ type of book. Like a Wuthering Heights. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, give me like 24 hours. I bet you $20,000. I can, you know. And the publisher is like, well, as it so happens, I have access to this estate Mm-hmm. Why don't you go there? It's like in Scotland, right? It's creepy manor in Wales. In Wales. And I'm getting all these details right. Um, <laughs> I know you're enjoying that. And the actor. Uh-huh. I'll just say random. I mean, I don't know what the talent pool was like in, you know, 1883, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but Desi Arnaz Jr. Yeah. But. I thought he was fine. They could have gone for like another <laughs> horror person. Right. Or maybe they needed more of an everyman to navigate between all these horror icons. Sure, sure. Yeah, he was good. He's very snarky, very like. You know. Yeah, he's an 80s guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very modern. He um, doesn't believe in love. And he's, yeah. He's not very, love at first sight. Right. He's very cynical. But speaking of love at first sight, you know, he sees this beautiful woman at this restaurant they're at, and he's just kind of struck by her. But anyway, he sets off to this estate and has some hiccups along the way, but he gets there, and people keep showing up like there's just it's supposed to be empty yeah he's told he's gonna have isolation to write this book first john carradine and and the woman they were hoping to get elsa lanchester but she was a little too old Mm. even for this movie and then they're like we're the caretakers and he's like weird i'm gonna go writing yeah and then the woman shows up and she's like the woman he saw at the restaurant Yeah. yeah and then peter cushing shows up and he's like and now peter cushing He's uh, got, you know, the aforementioned that he had a lot of fun with uh, Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons. Suffering? Sometimes I wonder if you know the meaning of the word. He's basically doing Elmer Fudd. Mm-hmm. So he's got that. Yeah, it's such a weird accent. Elmer yeah. Elmer Fudd voice. Uh-huh. It's like his R's are not his quite. W's. And his, his W's. Well, yeah. his R's sound like W's. Yeah. And then, like in Life of Brian. The guy, the son, who's been, it turns out, has been locked up in this room for 40 years because of his crimes, is named Wadawick. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, what about Roderick? And he's like, yes, what about Wadawick? Yeah, I didn't get that. Was that supposed to be funny, like his I accent? So. Okay, it didn't really land for me, but that's You know fine. what I think? I think it was funny for Peter Cushing. Yeah, and that's all that matters. I think that was completely his... Got it. He was like, this will be great. This is my little character thing. Yeah. But yeah, our author is like... Mostly bothered because he's like, I'm trying to write my book in one night. Can I please be left alone? And, of course, the plot thickens. Christopher Lee shows up and he's like, I'm going to buy this house. And I was going by and I saw the lights on. What are all you people doing here? And then people start to... Well, they go... The the scariest, best part of the movie. And by now, all of the cast has been assembled. Mm -hmm. So then before they start dying. So there's a real sweet spot in the movie where everyone's been introduced and no one's died yet. Yeah. So they're all on screen. Yeah. They have a little dinner. The woman plays the piano. You get a nice shot of Cushing and Lee, like, sitting on a sofa being like, terrible singing. <laughs> and then it's like, it comes out that they've locked one of their son, one of the children of this family 40 years ago. Yeah. Locked him in his room and been, like, feeding him through a slot. Yeah. And now on tonight, his sentence is up and they're going to let him out. And they go into the room. And them in the room, and this room to me is the best crazy scariest part mm-hmm. certainly when i was a kid mm-hmm. scared me 
on two levels. One, scared of somebody who they would do that to. And two, scared of being sent to my room. Oh, yeah. For 40 years. For 40 years. Because you just see all these, like, ch- now he was supposed to be 14, but they still had, like, a rocking horse and army men and just all these play things. And Roderick's not there. But it's still just, like, this cobwebby mess of, like, mm-hmm. And who knows? He could be hiding. Toys. He could be hiding behind a curtain. You don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then people start dying. And, and his like, crimes were like he impregnated a girl and, and then, then killed her. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a discussion. They're like, "Why didn't you call the cops?" And they're like, "In this family, we've always handled the Our law affairs. internally." And it's just like that's not right. Yeah. yeah. Really but then there's a twist. Turns out Roderick's been loose for years. Yep. And it's Christopher Lee. And it's Christopher Lee. Yeah. yeah. That was fun. That was a fun twist. The twists don't end there as the narrative wraps up. Yeah, that's true. Um, Which is why when I was thinking about double features, I thought the game. Yeah. With Michael honestly. Douglas. Yeah. Sean Penn. Yeah. Yeah. That one has a few endings. And mm-hmm. this one. Okay. So it got a PG. And one of the details I remembered from when I was a kid Chris really is like swinging the axe. He's mm-hmm. got this axe. Yeah, that's a cool Actually, scene. I, I looked up its proper name and it's somewhere in my notes. What, what do you call it when it's like that axe coming out of two ends? Yeah. It's got its own name. Yeah. That was um, cool. That was a cool scene. And after he's like killed, I want to say Vincent Price. Yeah. He's coming up the stairs and there's gore on the axe blade. Yeah. And this detail stayed with me from the early 80s <laughs> till about 2020 when I watched it again. Hair. Yeah. There was hair stuck to the gore. Like he was hitting him in the head. And I was just watching it on YouTube, by the way, which is, it's all on YouTube. Yeah. So whatever my resolution is, just watching some movie on YouTube, that hair is still present in the gore. Mm -hmm. There is a nice character moment, though, when he's about to uh, kill somebody else. He then switches over to use the clean side. Yep. As if just like, oh, pardon it's like Ghostface wiping the... Wiping the blade. Blade. Yeah. Free of blood. Thanks for small favors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it ends with first... Pretty good ending, actually. First, and then it mm, goes off the rails. <laughs> Turns out they were all actors. All of them. Which gives you another scene at the end with all of these actors. This Mount Rushmore of horror. Back again. They're in a little uh, post... Hey, we fooled you. Yeah. Scene where they're all just like drinking and complimenting each other on their performances. And And Vincent Price and Christopher Lee are like having a little tete a tete. And Mm. Vincent Price calls Christopher Lee a bitch. Yeah, he He goes, bitch. Oh my God. What a moment. Right? Absolutely incredible stuff. And you have to know who these guys are to to appreciate this. You can't just go to somebody and be like, and then this one old guy calls another old guy a bitch. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. It's like, well, one of them is Vincent Price and the other is Christopher Lee. And you got to go in with this knowledge. Which we have. Yeah. We just needed to have a, uh, a horror podcast for 10 years to yeah. really <laughs> mm, get a lot out of that To really scene. get it. Congratulations, Bernard. What a fall. All the way down the stairs. Yeah, wonderful. But then you always were good at falling from a great height. Can't compare, my dear Jeffrey, with your famous death scenes, which you've played so brilliantly for so many years. Bitch. But the reason these are all actors is because the publisher yeah. hired them. Spur of the moment. Somehow just, and developed this entire storyline. Some Welsh Amdram group. Yeah, just to deter his client from achieving the goal of writing the novel and thus winning the bet. Yeah. Then, turns out, he's just been writing this the whole time. 
Yeah. Nobody's shown up. There's no. no caretakers. There's no nothing. He's just been alone in a Welsh manor writing the book just like he said he would. Yeah. And then he's like, managed to teach himself a lesson. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can just take some uh, cynical guy, stick him in a room alone yeah. for 12 hours, and he comes out going, I believe in love now. Yeah. I taught myself a lesson. It's the power of storytelling. Yeah, but then he wins the bet, then he tears up the check. And so it's like all these endings for different movies, basically. Yes. Yeah. And I think the reason they did that sort of double fake out was so any horror that would have gotten them an R rating is then extra fake. Right. You're like, but it wasn't even real. It wasn't even real people. It wasn't even them getting guilt. Yeah. Yeah, no one's dying. It's like, not only were they all actors in the first place, they weren't even that. Yeah. They were in a book. I hope they didn't do that for the audience's sake. Right. I hope they weren't like, man, the audience is going to love this. Double fake. Yeah. I hope there was at least a pragmatic trying to get a better rating behind yeah. it. Yeah. But almost 40 years on, now we get to enjoy what the whole movie's mission statement was in the first place, mm. which is like, get these great old actors, horror giants, get them all you can, yep. and put them all in a movie together, which in that sense, success. They did it. Yep. Good for them. Good for us. We get to see Cushing and Lee out for uh, one more go. And John Carradine will be interviewed at the Magic Castle in Los Angeles by a not very bright young lady. We were sitting in front of the camera and she was looking at her notes and doing this and doing that. And she turned around and she opened the entire program by saying, well, you don't look very frightening to me. And Vincent just said, Boo. <laughs> oh, oh, we have a lot of stories. Unfortunately, this is not the time or the moment to tell them all. Um, naturally, they stayed friends till friends to the end. Yeah. Cushing lived another 10 years mm-hmm. after that movie. And three months before he died, a documentary about Hammer got the two of them together to record some voiceover. Oh, dragon. Whoa. I hate dragons. Mew, mew, mew. You've got something that's never existed before in the history of the cinema. I hope none of it will come out. It's just almost ten foot of him. I, I'm never in a light, and I get a crook in the neck. I am, I am, I may tell you. I'm, uh, I'm not even standing up here. I'm not even standing up So, as opposed to, say, a talk show or something else that might just happen together, they were in a room with people who knew how important it was that they were in a room together. So there was a lot of cameras going and a lot of, like, videotape. A lot of their interactions during this session, which was, turned out to be, the last time they were ever together, mm-hmm. is a well-documented meeting. So, sad, but at the same time, boy, don't you wish some of your last meetings had a full documentary career yeah. there, you know, to capture every moment of it. Yeah, you get a real glimpse into their... Their relationship and their playfulness, and you know, Cushing is pretty old and a little not with it. Yeah, but you still you feel the warmth. It comes right off the screen. Just (laughs) laughing like goofballs. Yeah. (laughs) I started to laugh, and Virginia McKenna started to laugh, and everybody started to laugh, and they didn't know why. But everybody started to laugh. And we behaved disgracefully. Our friend, Mr. Granger, was not amused. Oh, dear. Not at all. And, and all seven foot of you started to slide off. Yes, the yes, yes, yes. 
Are you going to say, can I, can I, I'm gonna can I? And and I don't even know, like how. I mean, now you say Cushing and Lee, and people are like, oh, you know, they're really good friends in real life. I don't know how or when that entered the zeitgeist. Yeah. Like we know it. Yeah. I don't know if like famous monsters of filmland ever picked up on it or if there's like old articles from like the seventies or eighties and or anything like that, or if it's just something people just sort of caught on to over the years that these two guys were mm-hmm. very warm mm-hmm. or biographers figured it out. But if nothing else, if nobody knew or suspected that all these years, these two guys were like the best of mates, that final meeting together showed it empirically with just how much they just enjoyed each other's company and lit each other up mm-hmm. you know, for the afternoon. Mm-hmm. It's all coming out now, these secrets for the last 35, 40 years, you see. This is the real story behind the door. And Lee gave Cushing the gift of a stuffed Sylvester the cat. Yeah, he liked it. And you can't always... A lot of what's online is just sort of like they have so many inside jokes and stories together, you're sort of catching them in the middle and you can't quite tell what the story is completely. Mm-hmm. So um, I think Cushing had also given Lee some, like, Looney Tunes, like, like a necktie. Yeah. With some... I remember you could get this back then. This was, yeah. like, 94. You could get, like, neckties with, like, cartoon characters on it. Mm-hmm. And not just at, like, a, a toy store, but, like, at a gentleman's shop. Mm-hmm. And just be like, hey, do you want a tie with a bunch of nonsense on it? Yeah. Because we do that now. Did you watch the This Is Your Life? I watched the Cushing portion. Yeah. And even within that, I tried to Google it. Um, it must have come from some play they'd done or something, but they always greet each other with, like, Mr. Andrews, that's my boy in your hand, which is just a collection of nonsense words. Totally. To you and I. <laughs> yeah. But for them, that was their, like, their calling card for yeah. each other. That's a really charming segment if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it. It's, it's really The wonderful. whole show is online, too. <laughs> yeah, also. yeah, yeah. Another one was when you got more used to it. Uh, we were with a lady interviewing us on that division. We had a, she supplied us with tea, and I said, "Well, would you like to be mother?" And they didn't understand. No, they didn't understand that at all. Uh, no, no, not at all, not at all. In fact, that's when the story started. All the stuff we just mentioned—that clip and the clips I was watching today of them, the last time they met—I didn't watch them until today because I knew they would make me sad. Yeah. But then watching it. Seen what a good time they were having together? Eh, it wasn't that sad. No. No. It was jolly. And like you said, they got to spend that time together. They might well not have, you yeah. know? And they got to. Lee has gone back and said how dismayed he was at how small his friend had gotten. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, I have a photo from that. It's from a magazine, actually. And I, I don't like it because of how small he is. Mm-hmm. And how, like, the cancer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. It yeah. just kind of like, you know, Taken almost the last of them. That's got to be so uh, hard to see your friend who you knew when you were both so young, you know, deteriorating like that. But, you know, that's what they say is like, you know, grief when somebody passes or whatever is a representation of just how much you loved the person. And so we can be sad about that statement where he's like, it was so sad to see him so small. But also... It was both of their privileges to, like, know each other for that long and, you know, and have such a close relationship. Yeah. So much. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like we all, if nothing else, like this episode of our show is about 
you know, it's about the magic of friendship, and we're just examining it through the lens of two guys who did a lot of schlocky horror films. Yeah. Together. And um, I, I don't know if this isn't the most important thing, but it is an observation I had like while doing this research. I never came across a who do you prefer? Who's better? You, mm, you know, there's, sure. there's a lot of sort of either ors. It's yeah. like Kirk or Picard. Sync or Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Uh, Joel or Mike, the first two Mystery Science Theater hosts. Beatles people can like Elvis, and Elvis people can like Beatles, but nobody likes them both equally. Now, I, I realize a lot of these are just sort of conversation starters. Mm-hmm. Sure. Just so you can kind of get into it with a person of like mind. But I never came across a Cushing or Lee. No. No one's had the the desire to pit them against each other. Yeah. What, why about, well, one, there's plenty of movies where they're pitted against each other just fine. But as far as, like, who's your guy? Who's better? The world seems to have just pretty much passed on that notion of competition mm-hmm. between two, uh, two very similar guys who were uh, not just best of friends, but, like, colleagues in the same field where um, that kind of discussion would happen. But people just giving it a pass, mm-hmm. which I like. Yeah. Speaks volumes for just how warmly they're thought of. The greatest story, and I have to say it's on on me, as they say, is the very first time we ever went to America, which was the premiere in New York of the first Dracula movie. And uh, we, uh, we, uh, we're on television now. I've never been on television in an interview in my whole life, ever. And so I was a bit nervous about this, to say the least. And so I said to my friend here, I said, look, I, I don't, I'm not used to this sort of thing. I don't really want to do it. I feel very uncomfortable. I've never been to America before, and you have, and you're used to all this sort of thing. I said, so please help me out, you know, because I don't think I'll be able to cope very well. So we get in front of the camera, and this man says something, Mr. Cushing, you know, you're over here for this and that and the other. And I'm sitting there quaking. And uh, he turns around to me and he says, uh, Mr. Lee, he says, is this your first visit to the United States? And I opened my mouth to say yes. And my help meet and friend said, well, it's interesting you should ask that, but just as a matter of fact, <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, he said, I was here before the war. And the man said, uh, Mr. Lee, he said, uh, how do you feel about this movie that you're over here to promote? And I said, well, I said, well, it's interesting you should ask that question. As a matter of fact, I never got a word in. So that was the great mistake I made. Please help me out. All right, Kat. Marshall. We did it. There's been a lot of space in between... Our last podcast and our next podcast, mm-hmm. but um, our next one on the roster should be a Halloween one. And as as much time as uh, has managed to pass between podcasts lately, we have managed to put out a Halloween one. Yeah, yeah. Every year we've under whatever the circumstances we've managed to put out one for October. So, oh geez, even if it comes out October thirtieth at midnight, yeah, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Uh, I think we'll get there. I think we'll get there. We've already got a topic in mind, which is its own success because we've covered a lot of, uh, hey, if you're listening to this, we got a bunch of logged yeah. Halloween episodes already. So go enjoy some of those while we try to get out another one. So until then, folks, uh, take care of yourself and uh, 
Chad, any, any parting advice? I would say, uh, beware of the moon. Mr. Andrews, that's the boy you got in your hand.